Friday, May 40 here. I had no intention of talking about this tunneling story. I just had nothing to say. But then Duvid was kind enough to send me an invitation to join him in his stream about Jewish tunnelers with Stephen J. James. And I had no intention of joining. And then I thought briefly about joining, but I had nothing to say. And then I went for a walk and I was listening to a book, The Hour of the Economist, about how various famous economists have influenced uh, American presidents. And then while listening to this talk on economics, uh, all sorts of uh, revelations about these Jewish tunnelers came to me. And these revelations just took me over, right? They took command of my soul. I understand these Jewish tunnelers, right? You, you may not know what I'm talking about. I'll stop playing some news reports and commenting on, but... This story just suddenly took over my soul just in, in the last two hours. I, I resonate with them because what they're really tunneling for is meaning. What they're really tunneling for is purpose. What they're really tunneling for is to be extraordinary. And I get that because that's what I do right here on this live stream, right? I'm tunneling for meaning and, and purpose and, and all that. And so in most of my life, there's nothing extraordinary going on, right? I'm not uh, some measure of, you know, hyper competence and just, you know, navigating my way through life with tremendous ease and beauty. No, you know, I'm just stumbling through life like everyone else. It's just that there are a couple of things that at times I do particularly well, uh, writing and sometimes, sometimes, sometimes live streaming. And so I get much of my meaning and purpose in life from making these live streams and writing my blog posts, even though only a few hundred people may, may check them out. It's a great source of meaning and purpose for me. So I understand these seemingly crazy people creating tunnels underneath the Chabad Lubavitch headquarters in a wild discovery underneath a synagogue in Brooklyn. An illegal tunnel found below the Chabad Lubavitch world headquarters in Crown Heights. Our Fox 5's Lisa Evers takes a look at how it was discovered. The NYPD was called to a location best known as a sacred site for the Chabad Lubavitch Orthodox Jewish sect. Authorities say a group of Jewish men who had a long simmering disagreement burrowed through tunnels under several buildings to break into the synagogue. They got into fights and uh, destroyed start... fixtures. The cement truck was here and uh, these these individuals or, or uh, some of their friends perhaps who broke through some of those adjoining properties uh, disrupted the repairs and ultimately broke through the wall in the sanctuary and vandalized that that wall as well they've since been look that's just what's on the surface right that's just what's ostensible that's just what's uh newsworthy but what's really going on here is that these students these about messianists they're looking for meaning and purpose and they're looking for some way that they can excel in most of my life i am competent you know i am average all right i am just another bozo on the bus but in in a tiny number of areas i think i'm an excellent alexander technique teacher i think i sometimes write some good blog posts and i think i occasionally make some videos that have some good moments and so i too am tunneling for meaning right now right theoretically i should be working right now but suddenly i got some open space right now and going to take time off from the responsibilities of adult life from the you know normal concerns of, of making money and, and paying my bills to tunnel for meaning of my own. 
Right, learning about this uh, different hero system. Arrested. Repairs have been underway for some time, as had the digging. The disruptor group reportedly stored their tools and equipment several buildings away in an unused mikvah, a large same-sex communal ritual bath space. Sources tell Fox 5 that forensic engineers and inspectors are investigating the structural integrity of surrounding buildings to make sure that they're safe. This is obviously very distressing for uh, the Lubavitch community and uh, around the world and Jewish people everywhere. This is a site that's of uh, great importance for, uh, for Jews all around the world. And uh, we're looking forward to the decorum and sanctity to be restored. Rabbi Yehuda Krinsky, chairman of the Chabad Lubavitch headquarters, said in a statement, the Chabad Lubavitch community is pained by the vandalism of a group of agitators who damaged the synagogue. The NYPD tells us that 12 men were arrested on a variety of felony and misdemeanor charges. A spokesperson for the Department of Buildings says building inspectors and forensic engineers are on the site and that they've opened an ongoing investigation. In Crown Heights, I'm Lisa Evers, Fox 5 News. Nine men are facing charges this afternoon after police say they dug a secret tunnel into the sanctuary of the Chabad Lubavitch headquarters in Brooklyn. The men described by police as extremist students are accused of digging the tunnel so that they would be able to have access to the sanctuary after hours. And when a cement truck was brought in to fill that tunnel, the men stood in the tunnel, refusing to leave. Eyewitness News reporter Anthony Carlo is live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, with the very latest on this story. Anthony. Dave, Lauren, we're learning new this afternoon that five of those nine young men will be arraigned in court tonight, while the other four were issued desk appearance tickets, released, and expected back in court at a later date. Right now, the city's Department of Buildings investigators are inside this synagogue trying to determine whether it's safe for congregants to re-enter. I think all who've seen the video can agree it is both chaotic and bizarre. Police arresting nine young men inside the synagogue between the ages of 19 and 21. The group charged with criminal mischief and reckless endangerment. Police say they were found inside a tunnel that was dug, leading to Chabad Labavitch World Headquarters on Eastern Parkway. Synagogue leaders described the group as extremist students seeking unauthorized access to the building. Okay, so do you think these guys are married with kids? Right? Normally people get all the excitement that they need in life from their children. And if they don't get it from their children, they get it from their career or their communal responsibilities or their hobbies. So I suspect that these students, these people arrested, don't have thriving family lives, don't have thriving professional lives, don't have lives that are thriving in any way. And this is a desperate tunnel for meaning and purpose. I mean, these people used to lead anonymous lives. Now they're essentially on the equivalent of the front page of the New York Times, right? They have found a tunnel to meaning and significance. Right? Everybody wants to feel important. I want to feel important. I, I do live streams and I write blog posts in large measure because I want to feel important. And I get my sense of importance from when I think I convey something that's important <laughs> that uh, adds, adds clarity that adds depth that uh, is not just something you can get elsewhere by breaking walls the tunnel had previously been discovered when a cement truck was brought in yesterday to repair the walls police say the group of young men stood in the tunnel and refused to leave 
A spokesperson for Chabad Lubavitch headquarters says in part the community is pained by the vandalism of a group of young agitators who damaged the synagogue below Chabad headquarters at 770 Eastern Parkway Monday night. These odious actions will be investigated and the sanctity of the synagogue will be restored. We spoke with some congregants who prayed outside this morning since the synagogue was closed pending an evaluation by the buildings department to determine structural stability. It's very tragic, obviously. It bothers everyone, this whole community. There's not a single person that doesn't bother him right now that it's closed. Unfortunately, there was a few people. I was there at the time. There was less than a handful of people that broke the wall. Unfortunately, they had to cause this disturbing thing that happened. I mean, why do I make so many disturbing videos and blog posts, right? I'm tuddling for meaning, just like these these seemingly crazy young men. No tunnel meaning, that feeling when you have no tunnel meaning. Your life is without a tunnel. Forty's reading too much into this? No. Like... We all have to feel significant. We all have to be a hero to, to ourselves, all right? Self-esteem is the reputation we have with ourselves, all right? We're all looking for significance. We're all looking for areas where we excel, all right? So I'm thinking about one woman who became quite fervent in her Orthodox Judaism, and I asked her secular relative, why did she think this happened? And the relative said, well, she wasn't excelling in anything else. This is a way that she can be great at something. My father was a great public speaker, right? He could mesmerize people. He was great at preaching the gospel. And so he devoted you know, almost all his resources to his career. He always made clear to uh, people around him and, and to family that his career came first because he thought of his career, he was doing the will of God. These tunnelers, they believe they're doing the will of God. They're doing the will of the late Rebbe Menachem Schneerson. And so they get to embrace and connect with the master of the universe, with their revered Rebbe. They get to you know, tunnel to meaning, and they will feel important. So you have no tunnel to meaning in your life? I mean, that's that, that's sad. I mean, what do, you, what do you do to feel significant? What do you do to feel important? What, what uh, sect is, is 40? I'm... I'm Orthodox, and I feel approximately equally at home in most forms of modern Orthodox Judaism that I've attended. I have felt at ease in some traditional synagogues. There are Chabad synagogues where I feel at ease. There are Chabad synagogues where I would not feel at ease. Have I been in a same-sex communal ritual bath? Yes, the mikvah I have. Forty is reading too much into this. I'm not. It's seemingly bizarre behavior. Notice, whenever religion hits the news, it's almost for a repulsive reason, right? A, a normal religious life, a normal Orthodox Jewish life is about praying three times a day in a minion. And this is not exciting. It's not thrilling. It's not newsworthy. But these students, right, they've found a way of taking some humdrum religious ritual and making it newsworthy, right? Yeah, a tunnel a day keeps the doctor away. I don't know how you keep going unless you have tunnels to meaning and purpose in your life. Like, how do you feel significant? Like, what gives you a feeling of importance? Maybe it's your close connection with your friends. Maybe you've got family who rely upon you. Maybe your community depends upon you. Maybe you have some volunteering 
opportunities where you play an important role in, in the lives of some people. Maybe you're, you're flourishing in your work. You're an innovator in your work, and that's where you get your meaning and purpose. Or maybe you're just really good at the, the practice of your religion, or you're really good at, at playing video games. Like We all tend to want to do those things that we're good at and to minimize the amount of time that we spend doing things that we're, we're not good at. So thank you to, to Stephen J. James and to Duvid for inviting me onto their stream because they, yeah, some like to tunnel, some like to stampede because it, it just somehow it got through to me. Like an hour or two after the invite, suddenly I started having thoughts and then I needed to talk about this on my own. I need to control my own tunnel right now. And this may reveal some antisocial tendencies on me, but look, I'll be honest, I feel too raw right now to talk to almost anybody. I have been, stop the presses, I have been unlucky in love, right? I, I have mishandled some interactions. I have misread some intentions. I have failed at, you know, the, this, this normal part of life, of love. Like, I, I have failed, and I just like, too raw to want to talk about it with with anyone else but here i am like failing in the, the, the love department and so i have this desperate desperate need right now to regain a sense of agency and competency and and to create something that is significant and worthy and good so i'm building my own tunnel to to meaning and purpose because like I'm failing here and I'm failing there. And like so much of my life just seems stuck, right? I just seem in a funk. I just seem to be repeating the same patterns over and over again. I've kind of been stuck out around maybe above, maybe below six figures in earning for the last five years. But uh, like 20, 2017 was like, I, I doubled my income from 2016. I, I went from uh, I went from about 25,000 to 65,000 and then uh, 20, 2017 was, was better and 2018 was better, but there hasn't been that, that dramatic takeoff uh, since then. I'm just kind of stuck around six figures. I've, I've been stuck now in you know, failure in, in my love life. I, I just, uh, uh, I'm just stuck in, in, in so many significant areas of my life, just not making any progress. And I don't want to even walk down a street where I might run into someone I know. All right. I, I don't want, I don't want to engage with people right now. I just feel like way too raw. Uh, I, I, I walk down streets where I'm less likely to encounter people I, I know. Uh, when I was on a 12 step meeting yesterday morning, I didn't like how weak my voice was, how it was, it was quavering. I, I like to start my day with a cold shower and it was 42 degrees this morning when I got up. And that cold shower was so hard because I am failing at life, it feels like, in various ways. I am failing at life, and so I lack confidence. And then I lack the strength to do the things that just should be normal for me. All right, that cold shower was excruciating. It was so hard. It was a completely different experience from taking a cold shower when I'm willing, winning at life, when I'm succeeding at life, when I'm, when I'm reading people accurately, when I am you know, navigating social interactions, romantic interactions, work interactions, when I'm navigating things correctly, when I'm reading the room, where I'm 
you know, understanding what, what's going on, then I can take that cold shower and it's like, yeah, you're a man. You're a strong man. You're a hero, 40. You're a tough guy. You know how things work. You know the lay of the land. And you can feel good because you've succeeded in this, this, and this area. But when you fail in certain areas and then confront the cold shower, or even walking down the street becomes difficult. Like speaking up in a 12-step meeting. I, I don't want to even call friends or, or family right now. It's just like, ah. It's just easier talking to, you know, impersonal blokes like uh, John Wolf and uh, Dan Smith and, and Star Rover. Like, I, I don't want to talk to anyone who's really important to me. I don't want to talk to anyone who who knows me. All right. I, I just want to talk to, you know, you blokes with whom this is like a, a safe, safe uh, relationship because it's like it's it's distant. All right. It's not too intimate. I'm not too vulnerable because you're you're out there. And I'm here, and I, I don't want you know anything closer. I don't want to talk to Duvid and Stephen James who know me, right? It's just too raw. Underrunning's not the problem. Underrunning's just a symptom of the problem of a lack of normal human connection. Just a symptom of my ego. It's just a symptom of me always wanting to be the star. It's just a symptom of my attention seeking. It's just a symptom of my lack of power to do the things that I should be doing. Lack of power, that's, that's our dilemma. Urgh, it's a symptom of a lack of competency. It's a symptom of not growing up. It's a symptom of not taking on adult obligations. It's a symptom of not treating other people's needs and wishes and desires with as much you know, respect as, as I treat my own, but instead ignoring and just, you know, writing roughshod over what other people want because I think I've got something that's funny to say. I think I'm just going to crack everybody up. And yeah, other people laugh, but they're laughing nervously. They're laughing, feeling sorry for me. Right? They're laughing out of a lack of comfort. Right? They're laughing because they don't feel safe. They're laughing because I've misread the room. Right? They're they're laughing because it's an involuntary reaction to seeing me make a total fool of myself. And so I can't talk to anyone right now with whom I'm too close. So maybe I'll, I'll stream snipe some, some duvid a little later. But I kind of see myself in these crazy tunnelers. I mean, that's me. Like I, I'm building some crazy tunnel to meaning and purpose on these live streams and on my blog, I've lived so much of my life since 1997 online trying to build a, a tunnel to meaning and purpose and feeling like I'm a star. <laughs> All right. This is my own Daladamos. This is my own, you know, few square feet of the world. And I'm going to rule. I'm going to reign here. And I'm going to star in this production. All right. I am the star of this movie. Right. I am the lead in this performance. I am going to control, you know, who comes on and what gets said and what gets played. And who gets to participate in the chat? I need that feeling of ownership and control and like I'm running something and, you know, I'm not vulnerable to everyone else's whims, right? I, I got to have my own space, right? I, I, this, is, this is me in, in, in the shade of, of my own fig tree, right? I, I'm just taking up a little space. I'm feeling the shade of my fig tree. I've got 
I've got the lighting the way I want it. I've got the audio the way I want it. I've got the settings the way I want it. And, and now I've got the message, right? I, I took the time to write out some thoughts. And number one thought, right? Most of the time, religion's in the news. It looks stupid. I mean, any outsider to, to this story is just going to think that these people are idiots, if not downright sinister, right? Uh, the the anti-Semitim are already seizing on this story, saying that, you know, the Yidden are doing nefarious things in these tunnels. And so another point is we live in an increasingly secular world, right? We have increasingly secular explanations for more and more things that, that happen to us. So I can't, you know, attribute my failures this week and, and last week. I can't attribute them to God teaching me a lesson. That's not the first thing that comes to mind. First thing that comes to mind is that, you know, I got drunk with a little female attention and I misread the situation. <laughs> All right. Someone was kind to me. Someone was nice to me. Someone smiled at me. Someone listened to me. Someone appeared interested in me. Someone asked me questions. And because she was young and female, I lost my head. I lost my good sense. I, I, I lost all, all, all sense of reality. And I just became drunk on, on these interactions. And, and why was I drunk? Because, because that part of me wasn't, wasn't getting fed. Just a little attractive young female attention. And I lost touch with reality, and it's embarrassing. I just made a fool of myself. And this isn't the first time it's happened. This is like the 917th time this has happened. And I'm a 57-year-old man. I should have graduated from this by now. But it keeps repeating. And you know why it keeps repeating? Because the underlying issue is is not being met. I am failing to live up to my adult responsibilities of, you know, getting married and having a family. And so I'm trying to meet my needs for connection and attention and for, for love and for community by making these bloody live streams and writing blog posts. Right? <laughs> God. So it used to be we would understand earthquakes as God's wrath, as God's punishment. Right now even Orthodox Jews, we understand that Earthquakes are products of tectonic plates grinding against each other. So even if you're an Orthodox Jew, which, which seems super-duper religious, right, more and more of the world around you, you understand through secular, frequently scientific means. And in our increasingly secular world, it, it's more and more difficult to, to not look at religious beliefs as, as crazy, unless you're born with them. Right? If you're born a Christian, you're born an Orthodox Jew, you're born Hindu, you're raised with these certain distinctive beliefs, then they, they make sense. But if you weren't raised with these religious beliefs, right, you, you see these things going on, like these tunnels under the 770 Lubavitch headquarters, and it just seems crazy. Right? Other people's religious beliefs at best seem silly, if not downright evil. Now, most Habudniks, mostly Bovichers, who believe distinctive things about the Messiah, lead happy, productive lives, right? These beliefs don't inherently drive people into gross antisocial behavior like we're witnessing with the tunnels. But even a Chabad has some unbalanced people, and unbalanced people will seize on opportunities to act out. I've even acted out myself in certain ways, making inappropriate jokes at inappropriate times. 
And so for some people, like the, the unbalanced members of, of Chabad, these messianic beliefs will act on them as a fire and drive them crazy. Just like I become drunk with young, attractive female attention, right? Someone who's unbalanced and more faith-based, more religious, more Lubavitch than I am, they can come become drunk and come to you know crazy actions because of the fire of these messianic beliefs. Like not everyone can handle Mashiach, Messiah talk in a productive way. Right? Not everyone can just leave their Mashiach talk for the weekends. Right? Not everyone can handle abortion politics or outright politics in a moderate way. For unbalanced people, all these things can just activate them. Like the normal bloke might be able to look at a bit of pornography now and again and seemingly not be negatively affected. But for people like me, it makes me drunk. It makes me high. It makes all the rest of life pale by comparison. It's dangerous for me. So religion in America, my dad taught me this, it tends to be a mile wide and an inch deep, right? It's a form of connection in a frequently disconnected America, right? In America with ever lowering levels, it seems like, of social trust and social cohesion, you can find some trust and you can find some cohesion in, in church or synagogue. And if you make any sort of human connection, you will feel happier and you will behave better, right? The, the best guide for how someone will behave is the quality of their relationships. If someone's got a family, good relations with their family, then they're more likely to behave in a responsible manner. I don't have a family. So I spend time making live streams like this. Right? Religion has significance probably to what? About half of Americans, but it's rarely the decisive factor for how they live. Right? It's just one factor among many. But for these tunnelers to meaning at 770, right, religion is a major force in their life in all likelihood because they're not thriving in any other arena. We all need to thrive. We all need to have an area where we feel great, where we feel important, where we feel significant, where we feel like we matter. Now, the people who tunnel to 770, all right, they... I suspect, have no problem insisting on the exclusive claims of their religion, right? The distinctive claims of Chabad Judaism. I, I'm sure they embrace them. But generally speaking, that's considered uncouth in America to insist too strongly on the exclusive claims of your religion. Right? A, a Christian who says non-Christians are going to hell, he's outside the mainstream of American life. So December 22nd, 1952, future U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower said, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. So that's a pretty good summary of the public role of religion in America. And if you care too much about the distinctive denominational uh, verities, then you're kind of outside the American mainstream. So probably prior to the 18th century, most people likely got much, if not most, of their news from the pulpit, from the, the Bema, which is like the, the Jewish pulpit, and so clergy could shape or influence much of what people knew about the wider world. Then we had the explosion of journalism in the 18th century. Now the news is overwhelmingly secular, so it's much harder for, for rabbis to spin disasters like the 770 tunnelers. So the church and the synagogue, it's, it's able to use mass media, right? But it only does so marginally. This is the great point that Bruce David made in his 1966 classic book, Religion in Secular Society. Right? So the church still relies on the pulpit and the pew and on religious literature and only marginally on the total content of the mass media. So compared to the amount of entertainment, music, news, drama, secular education, all the other types of 
items carried by TV, radio, press, and cinema. Religious information is a very tiny part of the media. But when we do get coverage of media, it frequently looks ridiculous like what we're seeing right now. And uh, the religious are simply not as good as the secular, generally speaking, at using the media or the internet for instruction or entertainment. Right? Uh, religious people use these technologies by courtesy and on sufferance. Right? They, they tend to be older middle, or middle-aged men using media increasingly dominated by the young. So the church and the synagogue will use the media and the people who control the media, the secularists, will use this fact in their own defense as evidence of their social responsibility. But a normal religious person must claim that religious truth is preeminent and that religious truth ought to take a dominant place in our minds. For these tunnelers at 770, religious truth took a dominant place in their minds. So relegating religious material to a marginal place in these programs of mass communication is itself a derogation of the religious message. So in using the mass media, the churches and the synagogues permit their own material to be reduced to the level of the medium, to be put forth without much differentiation of presentation from all sorts of incongruous material. And so this inherently distracts from the high claims and preeminence that religion makes for itself. It's hard to make these claims of uh, the, the overwhelming divine nature of religious truth when when you have this kind of you know crazy crazy things going on nine men now facing charges after police accused of digging the tunnel so they could have access to the sanctuary after hours but when a cement trunk was brought in to fill in the tunnel the men refused to leave the space eyewitness news reporter anthony carlo has the story from crown heights this sacred space turned into grounds for chaos monday <laughs> Police arresting nine young men accused of breaking walls to gain unauthorized access. Right, you think anyone's going to see this and go, oh, yeah, that's, that's the type of life that I want. So a belief doesn't have to be rational or empirically based to be adaptive. All right. So believing that my choices matter, even if nobody sees what I'm doing, right, that's an adaptive belief. Then other beliefs are maladaptive. The, the world hates me. So the rationality or empirical evidence for a belief does not determine how adaptive it is. So believing that your decisions, and your actions, and your words will echo in history, probably not rationally or empirically validated, but it may well give you the strength to do the things you need to do. So for many people, believing in God, a God who cares about them and judges their behavior, that has a positive effect. Though it seems to me the most profound forces that shape people's behavior are their level of connection with others and their genetics. So for many Jews, believing that God will send the Messiah to usher in peace on earth provides some inner peace. But for a tiny number of Jews, such as these tunnelers at 770 Eastern Parkway, their belief has tipped into maladaptive and illegal behavior. Now, every group, including Chabad Lubavitch, has cult-like elements. Like Even stamp clubs have cult-like elements, because as soon as we start to form bonds with other people, these ties bind and blind to quote Jonathan Hyde. So religion tends to become habitual. In-group identity tends to become habitual. We're evolved to live within specific tribes. We usually are not going to question our hero system. So one way to maintain a grasp on reality and to also enjoy a strong in-group identity is to periodically ask yourself, what would outsiders think about what I'm saying and doing right now? Right? What would people at uh, synagogues I attend you know, think of what I'm saying and doing right now? What would people 
that I pass on the street or that I see in 12-step meetings or that I see at the gym or at a movie theater or at a concert? What would they think about what I'm saying and doing right now? So I don't think these tunnelers at 770 pause to ask, what would outsiders think about what I'm saying and doing right now? So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist, right? It's a female-dominated, nurturing religion with a wild side. My Seventh-day Adventists are decent people, but during the Rwandan genocide, many Adventists committed mass murder. So it's hard to link their Adventism with their murdering. So there's a terrific book about the Seventh-day Adventist church called Seeking a Sanctuary, Seventh-day Adventism in the American Dream. And what was that Meryl Streep movie uh, a Cry in the Dark, right, about the, the Lindy Chamberlain case. Uh, there, Very early on in that movie, there's an Australian trucker seeing some Adventists and go, oh, these effing Adventists. Adventists are not popular in Australia. They're not really popular in America either. But there's a higher proportion, or at least there was when I was growing up, a higher proportion of Adventists in Australia than in any other nation. And so they attracted more social opprobrium. We were definitely way outside the Australian mainstream. And when you look at outside coverage of Adventists, what usually gets emphasized is their marginality to the mainstream of society, right? They are presented as, you know, just one of a host of deviant orientations. There's a black novelist, Richard Wright, who was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, and he found the Seventh-day Adventist vision incompatible with the world around him. He wrote, quote, while listening to the vivid language of the sermons, I was pulled toward emotional belief. But as soon as I went out the church and saw the bright sunshine and felt the throbbing life of the people in the streets, I knew that none of it was true and that nothing would happen. So Seventh-day Adventists tend to get portrayed as adherents of a bizarre religious system that expresses itself through lurid and apocalyptic symbols, right? Their beliefs are perceived to alienate them from and to be incompatible with a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. Now, I came to California in 1977. I found that California Adventists are much more liberal than the Australian Adventists I knew. So for many California Adventists, their, their beliefs about Adventism largely revolve around a you know healthy, nurturing approach to life. And so their Seventh-day Adventism does seem compatible with a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. But for the more traditional Adventists that I grew up around in Australia, this traditional Adventism is difficult to reconcile with a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. So the more important it is to you to hold on to your denomination's distinctive beliefs, right? The more difficult, more difficulty you'll have with a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. But I think the arrow causation runs in the opposite direction. If you're not able to enjoy a normal, healthy relationship with reality, the more desperate you will be to build some tunnel to meaning, even if it's completely bizarre, like to, to create some kind of deviant subculture where at least you get to be the star. So Richard Wright emphasized that while he was forced to live as a Seventh-day Adventist, he felt trapped within a deviant subculture so strange he could not even risk explaining his predicament to his friend. That's me. I don't even explain my predicaments to my friends right now. I just want to wax lyrical about building tunnels of meaning. You think I want to get honest and open and share? Heck no. I don't want to talk about it. Heck no. Let me opine. Let me sermonize. Let me get atop you know, this, this mountain. And, and speak from the mountain and strike you with lightning bulbs of sociological insight. So Richard Wright presents Adventism as an enclosed world of dark delusions, which evaporate when, he, when brought into the clear light of day. 
So the other thing that Seventh-day Adventists are known for is the health, right? There are very many Seventh-day Adventist doctors and hospitals. So the Seventh-day Adventist public image is complicated. There's a dark, sinister side. Right? David Koresh came out of Seventh-day Adventism. And then there's a healthy, you know, uplifting side. Now, I notice in Orthodox Judaism that most modern Orthodox Jews seem to enjoy a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. I don't know as much about Haredi Jews, so I can't really opine on whether I would say they enjoy a normal, healthy appreciation of the world. From a somewhat outside perspective, I'd be tempted to say no, that uh, Lubavitch Hasidim consistently appear to me as about the healthiest, happiest, most well-balanced of the Hasidic sects, but they certainly have their nut jobs. So it makes sense to me, if you are not awesome, if you are not thriving at the normal tasks of living, you'll find some niche where you can be awesome, such as building a tunnel under a synagogue. Right? These tunnelers no longer lead anonymous lives of no significance. I am no longer leading an anonymous life of no significance. Right? I am speaking on YouTube to 14 live viewers, and I am live on Rumble, seven live viewers, 21 people at least listening to me right now. Unfortunately, nobody is watching me right now on Twitter, and nobody is following me right now on Kick, but maybe I have an audience on DLive. I'm trying to build my bloody tunnel to meaning, blokes. Maybe the rent is just too damn high. <laughs> No, the tunnel didn't go to the girls' school part. Extremism is bad in religion and politics, etc. But why are people attracted to extremism, right? Normally, right, you get all the excitement you need from your children, from your family, and possibly your career and your hobbies. But if you are not able to accomplish these mundane tasks, then you've got to reach elsewhere for excitement. And it's a lot easier to feel excitement doing something extreme rather than doing something that is simply moderate and, and good. So too with, with doing a live stream. A lot easier to get a big audience if you're doing something extreme. Right? It's easier to get a big audience if you're doing something crazy. Right? Not, uh, not nearly as easy if you're trying to produce something that is true and good and, and profound. So, yeah, normal tasks of life, I'm okay. Nothing special, nothing extraordinary, nothing worthy of admiration or worship. But, you know, I have my moments in my writing. I have my moments doing videos. And so I get much of my meaning and purpose from doing what I'm doing now. You know, aside from this, I have no significance except to some family and friends. But when I do this, I can feel like a star, just like the the people building those tunnels. There is there is there any way back really for for religion in the West? Hello. My name is David Vos and I'm going to be talking about religion. Now I know some of you will be tempted to dash for the exit at this stage, but I should explain that I'm a quantitative social scientist and I'm going to be talking about the decline of religion in the Western world. Now, whether measured by belonging, believing, participation in services, or how important it's felt to be in life, religion is losing ground across the Western world. Society has been transformed, and the momentum seems to be unstoppable. Well, at this point, you might be asking yourself a couple of questions. First, is it actually true? And even if religion is losing ground, could things change in future? I'm going to argue that, yes, it really is true, and no, things won't change. 
Modernization has predictable and permanent effects, one of which I call the secular transition. Well, it's not the case that the pattern of decline is that people reach the age of 30 or 40 or 50 and suddenly decide that they're not religious anymore. What happens is they enter adulthood being less religious than their parents were. So there's a process of generational replacement where older people who are more religious die out and they're replaced in the population by younger people coming up behind. And that's a process that's been happening for decades now uh, across the Western world, in some cases for a century or more. Let me take as uh, the example whether people say they have a religion. And I'll use the example particularly of New Zealand, which has a question on the census about this. If you look at this graph, uh, the horizontal axis at the bottom shows year of birth. So we go from the beginning of the 20th century on the left to late 20th century on the right. And you can see that for the oldest generations, those on the left-hand side, virtually everybody says they have a religion. And you come down to the right-hand side and more, uh, roughly two-thirds say they don't. So that's a remarkable shift to have happened in the course of less than a century. Well, this sort of story is found throughout the Western world, even in the United States, which is often thought to be an exception. Things have started uh, more recently there. The process is still only just starting to be noticed, uh, but it is happening. I'll come back to the US in a moment. And it's similar whatever measure we take. So it's the same for attendance at services, for example. Well, you might be thinking, okay, the old Christian denominations are struggling. People don't identify with them so much. They may not be going to services, but surely they still believe in God, uh, or at any rate, they're spiritual in some sense, even if they're not religious. Well, here is the United States, and uh, this shows the proportion of the people who say they know God really exists and they have no doubts about it. Again, by year of birth, older people on the left, younger people on the right. And you can see that in the older section of the population, something of the order of three quarters say they know God really exists, and that falls to not much better than two in five uh, for people born later in the 20th century. Or Canada, for example, where we have data on the importance in life of religious or these spiritual beliefs. And here again, we see a sharp generational gradient. For right, so it's, it's difficult for religion to mount a comeback when every time it hits the news, it's for some you know, ridiculous reason. Okay, let's get a little burst here of Harvard political scientist Stephen Walt. There is a right to resist um, occupation. This is in the UN Charter, right? that, that occupied peoples have the right to resist, including violent resistance that subjects them to certain rules as well. They're not supposed to attack innocent civilians. So what Hamas did on October 7th is in fact a war crime. But the fact that an occupied population is resisting that occupation is not uh, surprising uh, or illegitimate. The second thing to remember is that uh, the popularity of Hamas has fluctuated a lot within the Palestinian community over time. And not surprisingly, every time the peace process appeared to be close to success, was making progress might actually produce a genuine viable Palestinian state, support for Hamas went down. Because, of course, Hamas... Right. The Palestinians are affected by this situation just like Israelis and just like all of us. Right. When I am running late, I tend to be curt, I tend to be rude, I tend to lack empathy for other people, I'm not particularly helpful. All right. Just the situation of running late uh, changes how I behave. And so to if Palestinians feel hope that there's a better world ahead of, for them, they are much less likely to support you know, a violent terrorist organization like Hamas. On the other hand, when a people feels helpless, right, when they see no way out, then they are going to be much more likely to support Hamas. Hamas was rejecting that particular solution, but when the Palestinian people saw that as a real option, Hamas became less popular. When that option appeared to be gone, appeared to be foreclosed, wasn't going to happen. Surprise, surprise, support for Hamas goes up because it's now seen as the only alternative. If you can't do it through diplomacy, you're going to have to do it uh, some other way.
And then the final thing to remember is, of course, the Israeli government, and in particular, Bibi Netanyahu, has at various points actively supported Hamas or allowed support to go to Hamas. And, oh, and we now know this, right? We have the receipts explaining that this was a good idea because it kept the Palestinians divided and it weakened the Palestinian Authority. Right. Much of Israel's foreign policy is being about dividing other Middle Eastern nations. And so limiting the authority of the Palestinian uh, Authority, limiting the, the dominance Palestinian Authority and raising up Hamas has, to say the least, you know, bit Israel in, in the backside. It's just a devastating miscalculation on the part of Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, the Hudson Institute uh, as well would be one I'd probably associate uh, with as well. Um, and again, it's not like there aren't any critical voices anywhere in Washington, D.C. or in academia or in other parts of the uh, the journalistic world. But uh, it's, I think, been over you know many years heavily skewed in one particular way, uh, particularly, if I may say, at the sort of level of, of you know, elite media, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, uh, New York Times. If you look at the sort of array of, say, columnists who write there, there is some... Uh, spectrum of opinion, but it's not a particularly diverse. Right. There have been very few pro-Palestine pundits. Can you name any prestigious pundits in the American news media who have been consistently anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian? I can't. Spectrum of opinion as well. Um, and I think that ultimately tends to shape how Americans view a lot of this. Yeah, especially oh, they... very, very importantly, I should also mention that there's the wings of the sort of Christian evangelical movement, uh, Christians United for Israel uh, being the most sort of prominent example, uh, that for particular theological reasons have a view of uh, Israel as part of fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And... Right. There is considerable support for Israel in the United States, but overwhelmingly Americans care primarily about America. Right. Overall, Israel is not important to most Americans, even evangelical Christians. And therefore are very supportive, not just of Israel, but of a greater Israel, which right. they believe is a step that will herald the second coming of Christ. Uh, some of these groups, I think, have a very dodgy view of, uh, of Jews in general, and some have been accused right. of having you know, sort of anti-Semitic undertones. But in terms of politics, of course, they're supportive of the special relationship. Yeah. In fact, I would guess that for Republicans... Uh, more of the, quote, pro-Israel influence. I put it in quotes because uh, neither of us thinks that what Israel is doing now is actually good for Israel. But um, the more the, the, the political force uh, comes from the actual grassroots voters. Like, there's a lot of evangelical voters. There's, there's, I would guess there's more Republican voters who care deeply about this than there are Democratic voters. I don't know if you agree. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked at sort of polling on that. It is important to, to note that, uh, you know, even I think for evangelical voters, uh, U.S. policy towards Israel is probably not the number one issue that's driving their voting behavior, uh, et cetera. It might be a part of the whole menu. Right. Very few Americans vote primarily on the issue of Israel. So when you hear about how Israel's popular in America or it's an important political issue, it's almost never the number one issue that determines how Americans vote, as you would expect, right? The healthy thing is for Americans to care primarily about America of things, but my guess is, like most Americans, they don't care that much about foreign policy. So it's mm -hmm. one item among many, but it's not the thing. Right, and that's true of the role of religion for Americans. It's one item among many. Right, for comparatively few Americans, I'd say fewer than 10% of Americans, is religion the decisive factor shaping their life? Now, most people in my life, their life is dominantly shaped by religion, but that is not my sense for most Americans. Thing that's 
you know, when they get into the ballot box and they're trying to decide who to vote for, they're not suddenly going, oh, well, I like this person more because uh, they said the right thing about Jerusalem or mm -hmm. something like that. I could be wrong about that, but um, but my. Okay, that's a good point made there by Stephen Walt. He was the co-author with John Mearsheimer of the book, The Israel Lobby. And here's more of Robert Wright talking with Stephen Walt. Oversimplification of its agenda. Yeah, I mean, I think that was very much the, the ADL's original um, uh, original mission. It uh, obviously con uh, included um, battling anti-Semitism, but it was broader than that and did, I think, enormously uh, positive work uh, in, in part exposing and rooting out anti-Semitism in various parts of American life. Uh, I think, unfortunately, you know, over the last 30, 40, 50 years, its agenda has shifted um, to, first of all, defending Israel at all uh, turns, uh, you know, sort of never being uh, critical and going after anyone who is with the accusation uh, that they are uh, somehow anti-Semitic. Uh, and as you and I've already talked about, uh, you know, the the consequence of that has been, I, in my view, unintentionally harmful to Israel uh, because, again, no country gets everything right. All countries make mistakes. Right. So he's pointing out that uh, the Anti-Defamation League you know, is now a leading defamer. It's like those who just build up, say, defensive weapons, right? Your, your defensive weapons are considered weapons by those who oppose you, and they're just as offensive as, quote-unquote, offensive weapons, right? If you love something, you're going to hate that which opposes you or threatens you. Um, sometimes they pursue wrong-headed policies for a long, long time, and therefore people criticizing them sometimes are actually not trying to hurt the place. They're trying to help the place. Uh, as well. Um, so, you know, there, the joke, of course, is that at least when it comes to Israel, the the ADL is really just a defamation league. It, it spends most of its time and effort denouncing people uh, who might be critical uh, of Israel. And, and you know, there have even been some ADL staffers who believe they've kind of gone off course by being so obsessed with policing. Right. The defamation league, anti-defamation league has turned into the Defamation League. All right, uh, the new Joe Biden foreign policy team, all right, is essentially the return of the elites, the, it's the return of the foreign policy establishment. And you, you know my position, I'm not inherently anti-elite or pro-populist. Sometimes I think the elites are right. Sometimes I think the populists are right. I think Joe Biden's foreign policy has been an absolute disaster embroiling us in war over Ukraine, in the Middle East, very possibly with China over Taiwan. So here's Robert Wright talking with Stephen Walt. Um, I'm not aware of a more comprehensive treatment of the problem uh, than, than your book. Um, I, I, uh, it's, really a, it's really a systematic analysis of, you know, it, just broadening the lens well beyond the Middle East, just the, just the, whole, uh, the whole apparatus of uh ultimately political influence that shapes american foreign policy um and how it it often shapes it in ways that not all of us applaud uh i'd really recommend the hell of good intentions because i think i think that too uh, uh well first of all it hasn't been all that long it came out five years ago but it certainly i'd say holds up right there's not a lot you change about that no, and and you could argue that uh, the Biden administration was kind of the revenge of the blob, right? That after the Trumpian uh, interlude, that you right, the Biden administration is the revenge of the blob. The blob referring to American foreign policy establishment, 
meaning American foreign policy elites. This is an example where I think the elites are wrong. The revenge of the blob in Joe Biden's foreign policy has been an absolute disaster because it places us much closer to an unnecessary war in Europe with Russia over Ukraine and to unnecessary wars in the Middle East and possibly an unnecessary war with China over Taiwan. You brought back the professionals. You brought back a whole bunch of seasoned people. Right. The Joe Biden administration brought back the professionals. Professionals are good, right? Well, sometimes professionals are good. Sometimes they're wrong. On Sunday, talked about the professionals, the doctors who perform thousands upon thousands of unnecessary hysterectomies, removing the uterus and oophorectomies, removing the ovaries, which reduce women's lifespans, which reduce women's sexual pleasure, which do far more harm than good. An example of the professionals, the doctors just being an absolute disaster for tens upon tens of thousands of women and, and the men who, who love them, right? The, the women who blog in protest against this butchery are more on the side of truth than the professional medical establishment. So sometimes I absolutely side with the establishment, the elite, the professionals, and sometimes I oppose them. I'm a very nuanced thinker. Well, it's kind of the Obama team back in action, uh, bringing the Obama band back together and taking it on the road. And unfortunately, you're getting a lot of the same uh, you know, pathologies and malfunctions. We haven't talked about it, but um, you know, I think the mishandling of uh, Ukraine uh, and now the mishandling of the Middle East. Right. Um, and the uh, the continued belief, and Biden even said it, that the United States is indispensable and has to be involved everywhere, uh, has to be in a position of primacy everywhere and really running the show in every corner of the world. Um, I think that's, you know, uh, very much in the Biden administration's DNA, uh, certainly very much how President Biden uh, looks at it. And uh, and there and not producing better results now than it did under uh, his various predecessors as well. That is not, I should hasten to add, not an endorsement of his likely GOP opponent, right. uh, who was also, I think, pretty bad at running American foreign policy and has all sorts of other uh, negative traits associated with him that make me worry uh, much more about what's happening. In so I like what the Biden administration has done in working with our allies, right? I, I think it's, it's good to build up alliances. You're, you're strong. We're stronger together, bros. We're stronger together. Here I am, hands, reaching hands, clasping hands. We're, we're stronger together, like working in alliances, both in our personal life, our professional life. Um, sex is much better with other people, with at least one other person. It, it's so much better than just sex with self. And Alliances are much better with, with other nations rather than just trying to do things on your own. So I think it's great that uh, Joe Biden administration spent more effort building up our alliances. I just wish they hadn't done it with regard to Ukraine. I just wish they hadn't been pushed into doing it with regard to the Middle East, where we seem to have disaster looming. So what the heck is uh, going on in the Middle East? Israel's war on Gaza 
Here is John Mearsheimer. You and I, when we wrote the article first in 2006 and then the book in 2007, it, it took us a while to get our hands around this whole issue. Uh, what we discovered, not right off the bat, but what we eventually discovered uh, is that there is a quite marked difference in how the public at large thinks about Israel uh, and how the elites, uh, especially the governing elites, but the elites more general, uh, more generally, uh, talk about Israel and the policies that we formulate. Uh, and there's much more skepticism, much less uh, attachment to Israel in, in the wider body politic. There's just no question about that. Uh, and it's certainly true inside the Democratic Party. And that's been true for quite a while. Uh, but nevertheless, if you look at the elites and how they behave towards Israel. Right. So in our rhetoric and in my education and the messages that I, I received, democracy is the way to go. But foreign policy is not usually run on democratic principles. In fact, almost all of life is not run on democratic principles, right? We get periodic elections, but other than that, foreign policy is overwhelmingly determined by a small number of people. The president can go out and start wars. He can go out, kill non-American citizens. He has the, the power to do that, right? He can essentially act as a 18th century British monarch, all right? He has all the foreign policy powers, essentially, that King George III had at the time of the American Revolution. So even if fighting for Taiwan is unpopular, we're going to do it, right? We're going to risk possibly millions of American lives fighting for Taiwan. That, that issue's already been decided. Foreign policy is not a product of popular consensus. Foreign policy is something that's decided by a tiny number of people. And Mishaim is putting his finger on one element of that. They all talk as if they have a passionate attachment to Israel and they'll do anything to protect Israel and they'll never cut off aid to Israel and so forth and so on. So there's this real disjuncture between the elites and the public. The key to understanding how the lobby works is that they focus most of their attention on the elites. What they're really interested in doing is putting uh, tremendous pressure uh, on people. Right. An effective foreign policy lobby, not just the Israel lobby, but the Ukraine lobby, the England lobby prior to World War II, any foreign policy lobby, right, effectively will concentrate on elites because elites make the decisions in foreign policy. It's not a popular referendum. People who formulate policy, uh, both in the executive branch and in Congress. Uh, and they want to create a situation uh, where everybody lives in fear of being what I call Corbynized. This is what happened to Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn was a labor leader in Britain, and he was critical of Israel. Uh, and what the lobby in Britain did was they waged a highly successful campaign to portray him as one of the world's great anti-Semites. And they basically ended his career as a politician uh, as a result of their effective campaign. And American policymakers live in fear that the lobby will target them and ruin their political career and even make it hard for them to get jobs uh, outside of government. So you have a situation where basically the lobby is. Remember Bill Ackman, the, the billionaire, he wanted to get the names of all the students who from those 27 Harvard clubs after the October 7 massacre in southern Israel by Hamas, October 8th, they released a letter saying that the blame for, for this massacre lies solely with Israel, which is a stupid thing to say. But uh, Bill Ackman, the, the Jewish billionaire, he wanted to publicize the names of every Harvard student who signed those letters to make it difficult for them to get jobs. able to influence policy in profound ways because of its influence with the elites. There are limits to what they can do with the public. But there, the basic name of the game is just to make sure that the public is not too hostile to Israel. Uh, and, and this is why the lobby goes to such great lengths to control the discourse. What's going on on university campuses is that uh, 
this is these are places, these are institutions, these colleges and universities where it's, as we all know, very hard to control the discourse. And this can be dangerous because you don't want the public discourse to get too hostile to Israel. It can be somewhat hostile. You can have problems in the Democratic Party, but you've got to keep it in certain bounds. And the place where you really run the risk that things will get out of hand from the lobby's point of view or from Israel's point of view is on college and university campuses. So that's why they pay so much attention to what's going on at these places. Uh, but Really, what's going on at a more general level is that you're just trying to control the public discourse to keep the public at bay. And you're concentrating, again, most of your fire at the elite level, especially with regard to people who are in the White House or with people who are in Congress. And the truth is, they are, the lobby is extremely effective at executing this policy. Uh, you can dislike it, and I dislike it for sure, uh, but there's no question that they are very good at what they do. I have another follow-up question. Okay, some... Uh... John Mishimer there, co-author of the, the book, The Israel Lobby. So who the heck is winning this war between Israel and Hamas? Right, I'm, I'm biased. I very much want Israel to destroy Hamas. I want Israel to be strong and safe. I wish I could say there's really strong evidence that Israel is just crushing it, man. They're just wiping out Hamas. And I just... I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing Israel crushing Hamas. I wish I was. Here's a former U.S. peace negotiator, Aaron David Miller. I don't think the Israelis are have nearly um, gotten to the point where they've accomplished um, any of those goals yes. right now. Same. And uh, Hamas's objective is clear, which is to survive and to trade the 136 hostages 20 of whom the Israelis assess, as do the Americans, that were either killed in, on October 7th, their bodies taken to Gaza to trade, or got, died in captivity. Um, to trade uh, hostages living and dead for a cessation of hostilities. That's what Hamas wants, to be able to say at the end of this war that it has survived the onslaught of the Middle East's most formidable military power and survived they will trade hostages, probably all of them, if they could get that cessation of hostilities. Aaron, tell me, what is Antony Blinken trying to achieve on this visit, do you believe? You know, I've traveled with a half a dozen secretaries of state. No single visit, certainly in the, in the fraught circumstances that now exists, is going to produce anything that you and I would describe as a breakthrough. He's working with at least four or five issues. Uh, Luke Croft makes a couple of... Interesting points in the chat. Forty is the most secular religious person I've ever come across. And he also notes, so long as civilians remain in Gaza, Israel cannot eliminate Hamas. Number one, uh, checking to see whether or not uh, Israel really is on track to fundamentally alter the nature of their ground campaign in an effort to reduce, uh, if not eliminate, uh, Palestinian deaths. Uh, and number two, to create uh, the, the sort of time and space in which humanitarian assistance, which is now dribbling into Gaza, but which needs to surge into Gaza, can take place. Those are two critically important issues. A third issue, of course, is escalation. Uh, the message of the secretary is de-escalation. Uh, here, I think um, it, it's hard uh, to, um, I think, argue that um, he's going to be talking to anybody um, on his visit, his previous stops in the Gulf, with the exception of Israel. Um, whether or not we, we escalate into what you and I would describe as a major regional war, yeah. and we're now four months into this war without such a um, escalation, um, depends on three parties. Four, if you add the United States. Number one, it depends on Israeli motives and their agenda. Number two, what the Iranians are trying to achieve. And number three, 
Hezbollah. Right now, uh, it seems to me that none of these parties, despite the bold talk by all of them, including yes. the Israelis, are interested in a major uh, confrontation along the Israeli-Lebanese border, which could easily escalate. We could wind we could wind up with a U, in a U.S. involved uh, campaign in which the Israelis and the Americans are striking Iranian assets, IRGC, or even directly Iran proper, uh, and spreading to the Gulf as well. Nobody wants that. Mm. I don't think his uh, Hezbollah and Iran's uh, uh, objective is the same: to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. And frankly, right now, Hamas is doing their bidding for them. It is a worrying thought. We could end up with a major escalation, although no no party to the the dispute to the. Okay, can can uh, religion come back in power and influence in the West? Um, something like two-thirds of the oldest generation saying that these beliefs are very important to them, and that drops down to something like one in five for the youngest adult generations. Well, as you look at those, you may well be wondering whether I'm simply comparing uh, the effect of being old with the effect of being young. Is it the case that people become more religious as they get older? Well, we have census and survey data going back quite a number of years, decades, in fact, across the Western world now, and we can answer that question. And the answer is no. On average, people within a given generation don't change across the adult life course. So what we're seeing is not the effect of age, but permanent generation gaps. Lack of religion isn't just a stage that young people are going through. So this idea that... Right. Religion will wax and wane, just as yoga clubs will wax and wane, depending upon its ability to meet people's needs. Right, and people are finding more and more meaning and purpose and explanation for the world around them and comfort and community in things outside of religion. Now, if people find an intensity and a passion in life in religion, right, that they can't get elsewhere, right, if they bond with people by attending daily minion at, at synagogue in a way that they just don't find they can in the secular world, then religion is going to come back if it's better at meeting people's needs than the secular alternatives. People want to feel alive. People want to feel passionate. People want to build tunnels for meaning and purpose, for feeling awesome, for feeling like they are doing something great, that they are leading a life that symbolizes something, that means something that is worthy of admiration. There's something about modernization that erodes religious commitments, that reduces the respect accorded to religion, is known as the secularization thesis. There are a couple of objections that are commonly raised nowadays to the secularization thesis. One is the example of the United States, which is modern and yet religion seems to thrive. And if it's an exception, then surely no generalizations are possible. The other objection that's commonly raised is that we're looking at change, not decline, and that while those old conventional churches may well be struggling, the new churches, new religious movements, Mormons and Pentecostals, for example, uh, there's alternative spirituality, and indeed non-Christian faiths like Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, that are gaining ground across the West. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, even in the United States... Voice tells you a great deal about a person, right? You, you hear in this person's voice a disinterested, right? That, that doesn't mean uninterested. Disinterested means objective, right? This is someone who is standing back, trying to see the big picture, someone who's not swayed by petty partisan concerns, someone who's not an ideologue, right? Someone who's not a pundit. This is not someone is interested in giving a hot take, right? This is the considered thought of someone who has probably spent decades studying the topic. And you can hear that disinterested, striving for objectivity note in his voice. States, in fact, it seems that the client has set in. We only just have the data now to notice, uh, but it seems that it started uh, a few decades ago. And it's following the same pattern of generational replacement that we've observed elsewhere in the West. 
And while it is the case that there have been developments, particularly immigration, that have brought people from more religious countries into the Western world, those effects aren't big enough to reverse the main trend. So, so far, so good or so bad, depending on your view of religion. Secularization is happening. But right, so you can get a read on someone just by hearing his voice. Like, if you heard my voice yesterday, it was weak. It was cracking because I was cracking. Like, I was sad and feeling incompetent and didn't want to interact with people. And then other people, you can hear they've got this, this you know, very manufactured, polished, performative voice, meaning to, you know, put on certain airs, right? I, I know there have been various times in my life where I would try too hard to appear to be happy, and it just rang really false, right? People could, could hear the falsehood in my voice. There's still a big question. You may be asking, isn't it possible that the popularity of religion could be restored, even in the Western world? After all, faith promises benefits that are difficult or impossible to obtain any other way. It offers meaning, purpose, solace, ultimate justice, life after death, prospect of being reunited with loved ones, and so on. Isn't it the case, you might be wondering, that nothing is irreversible? There's a reluctance nowadays, I think, to believe that we're converging towards uh, some determined future. This is a notion that was popular in the mid-20th century, but it's fallen out of favor. It reminds us now a bit of the Victorian idea of progress, where the highest form of civilization is represented by people who are remarkably just like us. And yet modernization does have effects. We can look at... Right, that one of the major effects of modernization is that more and more of your life, right, you can get explanations from secular studies, from science, from geology, from biology. ...mechanisms, and indeed it would take another few talks to even uh, try to sketch some of the factors that might connect modernization with problems for religion. But to name just a few, prosperity brings choice and an unwillingness to defer to traditional authority. Secular and scientific worldviews start to displace religious worldviews. Communications and geographical mobility... So these young men, they didn't want to defer to authority, right? They wanted to do something awesome. They wanted to expand the 770 synagogue. So here's a 3D rendering of what they were hoping to do. They believed that the late Rebbe Menachem Schneerson wanted to expand this synagogue, so they wanted to get the work uh, started for him, and they weren't going to defer to traditional authority, so they looked for a way to do something amazing on their own. And they only created a Helul Hashem, a, a desecration of God's name. Bringing people into contact with different cultures and beliefs. And physical and material security seem to reduce the need for the solace provided by spirituality. Now, whether any or perhaps all of these factors... Yes, the, the tunnel diggers are basically the National Justice Party of the Chabad Lubavitch sect. Right, they're, they're the equivalent of uh, Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker. Operate. It's clear that there's something about the process of modernization that does cause problems for religion. Moreover, it's very difficult for religion to bounce back. We do know of some places where religious involvement has increased in recent decades, but those are typically places where national elites had suppressed religion or imposed a degree of secularity that was lower than the development of the country uh, would uh, find natural. So one thinks, for example, of Iran, the former Soviet Union, China, even Turkey, perhaps. But when those regimes fell or restrictions were relaxed, religion rebounded to something that was more like uh, an appropriate level given the degree of modernization.
So the secular transition is underway, but why should it be irreversible? I think the key reason is that people with no religion have great difficulty in acquiring one. And if you're wondering why that's the case, it might help in understanding this to think about a religion that's not your own. Now, I'm going to guess that most of you watching aren't Hindu. Apologies to those of you who are, you can think of a different religion. But here, as an example, are some of the Hindu deities. And here are some scenes of Hindu worship. Now, some of you may decide that Hinduism is the faith that you've been looking for, but I suspect that for most of you, it seems a bit exotic, strange, maybe even slightly scary. And I suggest that that's the position that a large proportion of young adults in the West are in. So I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist Protestant, and I, I once stepped into a Roman Catholic church about 30, 35 years ago, and it was strange. It was weird. It was even disturbing. I mean, the, the bleeding Christ on a cross, the, the torture porn, it, it seemed like, just because I, I wasn't raised in that religion. With respect to any religion, they weren't brought up going to church, and they don't feel comfortable attending. They didn't grow up with Christian doctrine. That's not to say that they won't become Christian. Some will. Many will. Some will become Hare Krishna or Muslim or Buddhist. But most won't. And for most, in fact, it's nearly impossible. You have to be raised with religion to find it natural. Now, I'm not suggesting that religious belief is inherently implausible or religious practice is inherently odd. On the contrary, what I want to argue is that it's a matter of custom and culture. So in the past, in the West, most people had a religion, at least nominally. Most people had some sort of religious knowledge. Religious involvement was the norm, and it was supported by culture and popular sentiment. These days, the default is quite the reverse. Many people grow up with very little acquaintance with religion or religious identity. Religion has become almost countercultural. Indeed, to the extent that people have any contact with religion, it's often in news stories about extremism or abuse or intolerance. And that's simply not... Right, that's how people come in contact with religion these days, with, with these horrible news stories. Let's, let's replay the segment. Religion or religious identity. Religion has become almost countercultural. Indeed, to the extent that people have any contact with religion, it's often in news stories about extremism or abuse or intolerance. And that's simply not conducive for religious revival. I'm not arguing that Westerners are all rationalists with a naturalistic worldview. On the contrary, a large proportion, at least half, believe in God uh, or something out there, a higher power, perhaps. Uh, another large, perhaps non-overlapping proportion, believe in some form of life after death. But for most people, it's not something they're very interested in. It's not something that's very important in their lives. They have little interest in becoming. Okay, so if, uh, if you just encountered this video, would, would you find it strange? Here are five things most people believe that are not true. To believe that certain things are so, this is my when father. they're not so, can be very, very dangerous. It can cheat us of happiness, joy, success, and in some cases, life, here and hereafter. Right, this is just a few months before my, my father died, right? Still giving his all, right? Sharing, uh, sharing the gospel with people. I'm going to mention several things that most people believe which are not at all true. But who am I to dogmatize about such things? Right, me, I, I'm running him at 1.5 speed. To be frank with you, I am a poor, weak, sinful, nobody. I'm in my 88th year of life, but for most of 80 years, I have spent several hours a day 
studying some of the most important books in the world. I've attended several universities, USA and England, written PhD dissertations and about 40 other books. I have given approximately 30,000 lectures on radio, television, schools, colleges, seminary and Christian groups. But I confess to you that everything I have learned, apart from the love of God revealed in Christ, is only chaff. Right, let's go. Here are the things that most people believe which are false. Number one, the more money, the better, the happier. Okay, Desmond Ford issues. That's... Uh of this world to be uh, listening to man's opinion. You want to hear a word from the Amen. Lord. And we promise that you will hear that word when you send in a question. We'll take okay. our time with them. We will not try to rush through them, but we want to give due deference and due diligence to all of your questions so that when the question is answered, you've got a good handle on what the Word of God has to say Amen. about that particular issue. So we promise you to do that. Should you want to get in on the fun, we ask your word. Amen. In a world that is so confused, mm. you have given us certainty and answers to our questions through the written word. Amen. Uh, it sort of gives us an idea of when that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, because in verse... Remember, they were clothed with a light. Uh, the Spirit of Prophecy clears that or makes us very clear, but we know that they were not, they were, they were, the Bible says that they were naked, but they were not ashamed, meaning they were not revealing their nakedness. Something was covering them. That's in verse Okay, this five, video is two. called Desmond Ford Issues. And this is one way we can see that she did not lose. You know, she appeared as beautiful and as innocent as before. So, were they talking uh, about my dad? The problem to a God who could have a solution for that problem. Mm -hmm. And so he, he ate, uh, and at that point, it became unredeemable. Mm -hmm. Both lost their light. And but, but the father loves the son, so it's very simple for the son to subject okay. himself to the father's authority voluntarily. Uh, you know, uh, in uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 5, mm -hmm. uh, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And then that would be very easy if uh, the husbands did what uh, verse 25 says. Yeah. Husbands, but, love but, your wives. Yes. Just well, run it by you. You know, that's where I'll run it by. I'll refer to you just to get some input from you so that my, my decision is, is, is balanced. Well, in heaven, all of those exist. Position, deferent, and referent. Because we know that... Uh, John 10, 30, very simple text. I and my father are one. So we think alike, we act alike. I didn't we hear move anything alike. about so Desmond Ford is, here. The bottom line of his objection to the investigative judgment was that it takes away our assurance of salvation. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the bottom line. Because he believed that when you're justified... Okay, the point is, if you weren't born into these particular theological beliefs, they will just seem bizarre and silly to you. Uh, by Christ. Um, it's almost like uh, once saved, always okay. saved. You're mm -hmm. secure mm -hmm. uh, because of justification. Uh, and your works, your behavior doesn't have anything to do directly with your salvation. You know, sanctification is the result, but it doesn't have anything to do with uh, justification. And, um, <coughs> and so he said, you know, if, there, if the time comes when we're going to have to be before God's judgment bar to render an account of our works, well, then, you know, if our works don't measure up, yeah. uh, our salvation is threatened. So basically, that's the bottom line of everybody who criticizes the investigative judgment. Mm -hmm. right? But the Bible tells us very clearly that believers are going to be judged before the second coming. Yeah, right. Whenever you hear someone say the Bible tells us very clearly, you can know with absolute certainty that they are unable to read the Bible in its original languages. Because if they actually knew something, they wouldn't be saying these things. Let's read uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse uh, 10. And let's remember that Paul is writing to believers. He's writing this to believers. Correct. It reads there, for we must all appear before... Okay. I can't take any more. Let's see what uh, the Jewish Tunnels discussion was like on uh, Stephen James's show here with David. Okay, no, I thought it was me that called. I had my my Twitter was popping up. That uh, I apologize about that. Okay, so uh, God bless the Brundle with the shekels. So wow. I'm going to explain you, the, factionalism, the factionalism and my best understanding of what's going on, and then you know some implications that might be relevant to uh, counter Semites to nationalists to uh, various people that. Uh, 
you know, why this might be relevant to them and uh, you know, some implications of world Jewry, uh, Zionism, global Zionism, Chabad International. Um, so yep. one of the factions, really a few of the factions, is the people who believe that the Rebbe is Messiah. So there's a famous mantra, and it's not just Chabad who chants this mantra. A lot of different Hasidic groups have this messianic uh, understanding where like, their head rabbi is a potential candidate for Messiah, although uh, nothing compares to Chabad. And this famous mantra is, uh, long live our master, three different words for master, Melech, King, Hamashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one, Loyalim Voed, forever and ever. And so this is one of the popular chants that they do in the synagogue. And if anyone's been there, like I've been there probably like 50 times and I've seen this many times, they like chant like the Rebbe's still alive. Even though the Rebbe I think, passed away in 1994, like they organized the synagogue, like everyone stands up and lines up like the Rebbe's coming and leaving, um, you know, even though the Rebbe passed away in 1994. And this is one of the chants that they do. And Shlita is like a, a a title given to rabbis that are still alive, as opposed to Zitzal, which would mean uh, you know a, a a blessed memory. So uh, I guess I'll jump right in. I'll explain. A few different things because it's kind of hard to understand like what the hell's going on why are people digging yes. tunnels into the synagogue it's beautiful by the way thanks for the chant david i'm sure everybody got tingles on the back of their neck there yes, standing up. long live our king messiah forever and ever um king of the world savior of the whole world so uh there's different factions within mm -hmm. chabad and there was like an interim peace agreement there's actually so I mean, chabad dates back like 300 years uh, one of the first students of the Bolshemtov, and it occupied multiple towns in Russia at some point had been part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and then uh, later was conquered by Russia. Going into World War uh, II, was conquered by the Germans and was destroyed. Uh, but it's a was a a Hasidic group of kind of like that created a royal dynasty where it was a revival movement where a charismatic rabbi uh, became chief rabbi and then created like a dynasty where his kids took over as chief rabbi and then they expanded into multiple towns in the area of. Uh, creating we'll call it like a rabbinic dynasty so by world war ii there may have been as many as like 50 right so a rabbi develops a following by meeting the needs of his followers so for most ascetic jews they, they feel a strong intense need to have a connection with with god and the rebbe you know, shines the light right he, he points points the way to the one true god he he serves as a bridge between his followers and the creator of the universe thousand people who were part of this uh, Chabad Lubavitch group. Lubavitch refers to a town that was destroyed uh, okay. in World War II. Schneerson is the name of like the royal Jewish family, uh, going back to the first uh, Alter Rebbe, uh, Rav Schneer Zalman of Leidy. Leidy is another town uh, near Lubavitch, and he wrote you know, the Tanya with the infamous uh, verses about uh, you know, the Goyim and a lot of the stuff that's quoted by counter-Semites. To the seventh Rebbe that passed away in 1994, and it was somewhat accepted to at least be the potential Messiah by a large segment of the Jewish world, not just the specific small Hasidic group. Is that this guy, yeah? Well, so he passed away in 1994, and there hasn't been leadership since then. So okay. I mean, it gets pretty complicated. I'll try to wrap, wrap, you know, put it together relatively quickly. But basically, yeah. it was already an international movement. So here in Metro Detroit, uh, the sixth Rebbe had already sent followers to settle Metro Detroit in like the 1910s. So, uh, you know, there were before World War II, like there were tens of thousands of, uh, you would call this Lubavitcher Hasidim. The point is that what these tunnelers thought they were doing is they thought they were carrying out the 
wishes of the late Rebbe Men- Menachem Mendel Schneerson. While the leaders of the Chabad Lubavitch movement left behind, right, they are, of course, vehemently opposed to this kind of vandalism. And they had already to somewhat been sent all over the world with settlements in multiple major cities in the United States, South America, Israel, uh, different places in Europe. Why no successor since Menachem Schneerson died? Because there hasn't been an obvious one. There hasn't been one that will unite the Lubavitch Hasidim around him, right? The Rebbe did not have a son or even a daughter. Europe. And after World War II, or when World War II broke out, um, you, the Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe at the time, um, makes it to America. First, this Rebbe who is like a cousin and marries the previous Rebbe's daughter, even though they were cousins. They're both Schneersons. Um, but uh, the Rebbe, you're during World War II, during the Holocaust, he's actually saved by a Nazi, by a half Jew, a half you know, a Jew from the father who was somewhat of a Nazi commander, uh, takes a bribe and does something and able to uh, save the Rebbe so he could make it to America. And um, they tried to establish in this neighborhood in Brooklyn called Crown Heights. And at the time, Crown Heights was mostly white Anglo with like a secularized Jewish community, maybe like reform conservative. And uh, the previous Rebbe from Europe, who you know, was probably born in the late 1800s, um, continues being Rebbe through like the 1950s when he passes away. And then his son-in-law becomes the next Rebbe. And, and of, I mean, God forbid, a lot of you know, Lubavitchers, they don't make it World War II. Uh, but after World War II, whatever ones survive, a lot of them end up in Brooklyn and they become the main group in Crown Heights. Uh, estimated today with maybe like 30,000 or so in Crown Heights. Uh, but you know, starting in the 50s and 60s, uh, already 5,000 5, Lubavitchers in Crown Heights, they resettle their headquarters in Crown Heights. And after the sixth Rebbe passes away and the new Rebbe starts in the 1950s, he starts creating innovations. And one of these innovations is to send rabbis all over the world. And also some form of like Zionism or Messianism. And we'll talk, we could talk about that more and it's related to what happens. But uh, you know, so suffice it to say, in the Rebbe's lifetime. In- okay, so the Rebbe had a profound influence on tens of thousands of Jews. And when you have someone with that much charisma, when you have someone with that much power over people's lives, uh, some people will receive that charisma and that power and they essentially won't be able to handle it. And the unbalanced, all right, we allow it to be a fire that consumes them. Starting in the 60s, he starts sending, um, you know, called Schlichem ambassadors all over the world, mostly starting in the United States or some in Europe, and throughout 1994 when he passed away. And I think when he passed away, there might have been less than a thousand ladies. And so it's just an excuse, like, to say, okay, they're, they've gathered in masses because of anti-Israel protests. However, the meaning of it is the largest demonstration of foreigners uh, flexing their power that they've taken over all these cities. Yeah, but what, what's what's the point behind that exactly? We we know this. It, it was the same when they were raping uh, our children in the northern mill towns. They never had marches with hundreds of thousands of people. They didn't need to. Win. They didn't need to. Yeah, but if they made that flex, so this is like the biggest possibly. Ever. Oh, yeah, no, what, what about the riots back in I think it was two thousand and eleven. In all the major cities. You mean the George? They, Floyd? There was the, they were flexing them as well. You mean the George Floyd two thousand sixteen? No, 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 no. I mean, I mean the two thousand. I'm sure it was two thousand eleven. The riots in all the major, uh, major cities. In Europe or the U.S., I'm not recalling the 2000. No, no, no. This, this was in Britain, specifically in Britain. Yeah, but was it of this number? Oh, absolutely. They, they, they were not just, uh, you know, they were not just rioting or, um, you know, they, they were not just rioting. They were looting shops and everything. Okay, well, I'm in the U.S., so it's not ringing a bell to me, the 2011. Um, but I mean, if you're saying this isn't the largest uh, flex or phenomenon, that the 2011 was just as large. 
So I'm just making a side note, and I guess you largely agree with me that the that there is a certain flex to it, and there is a little, um, you know, even though the Jews are like crying, like, oh no, they're marching against us, rising anti-Semitism, but at the same time, it's also a flex of the success of multiculturalism. Yes, and, but, but, and but Jews like, have helped to cause the problem. This is, this is the whole point. Jews have helped to cause the problem. It's like Frankenstein's monster coming back, uh, you know, to well, the problem for you. So the question is, how big of a problem is it actually for Jews? Uh, Jews, Jews causing the problem why hundreds of thousands of Muslims are marching in England. All right, uh, England chose to have a massive amount of Islamic immigration, and now they're they're paying the price for that. Right. Uh, Many Muslims will assimilate into the English system, but uh, other Muslims may indeed take uh, generations, and uh, there may be quite a bit of uh, turbulence until then. Bernard says, Duvid is the obvious next Rebbe. You can see it 100 miles away. I didn't know he could sing. wonder what other talents he has hidden away. So, yeah, Duvid is commanding 58 live viewers right now. He's just crushing me. Okay, when do we trust the medical establishment? When should we have skepticism? There's a writer by the name of Gary Taubes who has produced some thoughtful and I think possibly important books. Obviously, I have no expertise on, on diet or, or medicine. But uh, there's a new book out that got a respectful review here in the Wall Street Journal, and it touches on these questions of expertise and do we trust doctors, do we trust the establishment, uh, when do we trust, how much do we trust, right? And this new book is called Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatment. So I remember I went to my doctor for a routine blood test in something like 2005, and it came back with a... a blood sugar level of like 115, which qualified me for pre-diabetes. And it was such a shock that I immediately cut out all fruit juice from my life and cut out all sorts of sugar from my life. And pretty much ever since then, I've tried to eat a diet that is low to moderate in, in carbohydrates, right? And that's essentially the type of diet that uh, Gary Taubes recommends. So it's 100 years now after the miraculous discovery of insulin to treat diabetes, but is the best treatment for many people not insulin, not medicine, but uh, changing their diet, perhaps to a low-carbohydrate diet. So Gary Taubes is a veteran science journalist who's written five books on the relationship between diet and chronic disease, right? And he offers a unified theory on why patient outcomes are lagging. The key is food, specifically our over-reliance on carbohydrates. So carbs are cheap, right? easy to find carbs, eat lots of carbs for very little money. Protein tends to be much more expensive. And so Gary Taubes believes that diabetes is a cautionary tale for the medicalization of modern life, which unduly emphasizes pharmacology over diet. And I think he's onto something. We do have this medicalization of modern life where ordinary human sadness, such as what I've been going through for the past three days, all right, it's caused me to reflect. I've written page after page in my journal. I, I don't want to leave the house. When I do leave the house, I don't want to run into people. I don't want to talk to friends. I just want to uh, move through my, my shock and my, 
my disappointment over misreading different situations and unlucky in love and uh, reflect on what I've learned from it, what I can do differently going forward. So depression has this adaptive function. It gives you time out from your regular routine to consider what you've been doing, where you've gone wrong, and how you can do better in the future. And you can plot out more adaptive paths forward compared to what you have been doing. So I've just been writing out page after page about the various areas of my life where I feel stuck, where I'm not making as much progress as I want. Now, you can't medicalize depression, right? If if someone is still feeling low after a certain number of weeks, then you can give them pharmacological solutions for their depression. But most of the time when people are feeling sad or low, right, it's an adaptive response to loss. And it's worth taking time to grieve, to get over the shock, to learn from the experiences and plot you know, more productive ways forward. So Gary Taub says, we'd be healthier if we ate better and if we took fewer drugs. Right, so Gary Taubes has been writing about this the last 20 years. He seems to have read every study ever conducted on the relationship between food and diabetes. And he seems to make a convincing case that uh, dietary fat has been given a bad rap even before the insulin era began in 1921. So this demonization of fat, right, saying that fat is the cause of heart disease, right, that led the all sorts of medical organizations to prescribe diabetic diets high in carbs and low in fat. The problem is that carbs obviously increase your blood sugar, elevate your hypoglycemia, right? Exactly what people with diabetes should avoid. So the solution from doctors was to take more insulin, but maybe that's not such a great solution. All right, so for a type 1 diabetes patient whose pancreas produces little or no insulin, injecting more insulin significantly increases the risk of low blood sugar, which can be dangerous. And injecting more insulin can also contribute to weight gain. All right, for a type 2 patient whose body is resisting the insulin, it's already making, delivering more insulin doesn't address the body's underlying problem of insulin resistance. So the whole hero of the rethinking diabetes movement is an engineer turned doctor, Richard Bernstein, who had type 1 diabetes. And in the 1970s, he became the first person to use a home glucose meter. And looking at his data, he realized that a low-carb diet minimized his blood sugar, his glycemic swings. So for the past 40 years, his books, academic papers, and other advocacies, he's been the leading low-carb evangelist for people with uh, diabetes. So we have allowed doctors and pharmacological miracles in the treatment of diabetes, such as insulin, to perhaps supplant Food and nutrition is the foundation of good health. So there's one 19th century Italian physician who said the remedy for diabetes is not in the drugstore, it is in the kitchen. So now we have all sorts of new drugs for, for weight loss, right? The GLP-1 and GLP uh, that are being prescribed for both obesity and type diabetes. These drugs are expensive, $1,000 a month. They have significant side effects. Their long-term effect is unknown, yet uh, hundreds of thousands of people cannot get enough of these Ozampic-type drugs. So would people be better off losing weight and controlling their blood sugar with a proper diet and exercise? But maybe that ship has sailed. Many people are simply unwilling to put in the kind of uh, discipline to you know, eat, eat a diet that is more conducive to a stable blood sugar level.
Okay, let me try out a little bit more Duvid here. Uh, you know, because like there's a lot of big families there and people like discard it. So they could have been using like the baby carriage just as like a wheelbarrow to you know, wheel around dirt or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that might be more reasonable. And I, I can't imagine having kids there. But like, yeah, I'd say like definitely a lot of people were living in those tunnels. And that's why you have the mattresses there. Um, no. So you have a few other elements like related maybe to your audience and like alt-right type things. So, you know, one thing, you know, New York City's like ran by blacks. So like the, the right. local police departments probably like this kind this kind of guy yeah who says gotcha what is that Kanye West that's Kanye yeah what I'm saying Crown Heights itself the local police department the local district uh, leadership are going to be mostly black let alone like Eric Adams I think Eric Adams actually comes from Brooklyn near Crown Heights Uh, so you the type city leadership what's the city so I mentioned to uh, I think it was on a stream with Adam Green and Richard Spencer and I was talking about like the pro-Palestinian protests and why to some extent they're actually good for the larger Jewish cause because uh, it's like a game of chicken between the whites and the Jews of who's going to call chicken first and usually the whites will call chicken first so you're like oh my god like all these Palestinians are pro-Palestinian protesters are uh, um, you know taking over the streets of every major city Uh, but who's going to call chicken first the whites or the Jews it's like okay they're protesting against Israel the Jews are scared but at the same time, it is a show of force of multicultural that like the like the whites, you don't own your cities anymore. Like the West is no longer the West. It is multicultural. And you have uh, you know Palestinians taking over the streets everywhere or pro-Palestinian multicultural <laughs> coalitions. So um you'll say, well, who's gonna do something about this? And well, you will think it's well, it's the the blacks that are the local government officials in that area. And <laughs> Okay, question. What type of headphones do I use? Right, uh, spent uh, $348 for Sony WH-1000XM4 wireless premium noise canceling overhead headphones with mic for phone call and Alexa voice control. So, yeah, I spent $350 for my headphones. Whoops, sorry about the sound. Yeah, so, the black to, the, to the black to the city officials, it's going to be them who have to crack down upon this. He's saying but. uh What's the point you're getting at? Are they going to be able to do it? Are you saying that basically they're going to get outsmarted by the Jews living there? Well, and it's going to turn into, you're basically like the multicultural coalition of oppressed minorities against the whites. And even mm-hmm. like the anti-Israel protests, to some extent, are like anti-white protests. So even though they're protesting Israel and international Jewish support for Israel, they're still largely anti-white protests. So mm-hmm. there's a chat comment on Stephen J. James's stream. It calls Duvid the demoralizer. There's a certain element of jury that you're basically saying, <laughs> even if the multicultural coalition is rising up against us as Jews, the key thing is to completely wrestle power away from the whites. And once the power has been wrestled away from the whites, the power will naturally fall back to the Jews. So, Okay, I've never heard any Jews talking about we have to wrestle power away from the whites. Uh, every living thing is trying to maximize his environment for his you know, best thriving. So that's true for blacks, for, for Jews, for the Irish, for the Japanese. Every group wants to maximize its own welfare in the world around it. All right. There was a terrific conversation between Richard Hanania and Amy Wax. <laughs> the black IQ is one standard deviation below the white IQ, so we're never going to achieve equality. Is it, like, exactly how do you want them to sort of approach this? Well, subject? that's, yeah, I think that's probably uh, asking for a lot, right? Um, I guess this has to be, you know, stepwise. 
And the first step would be a kind of sense of resignation that uh, this is not something that we as a society can do much about. We've tried very hard. We've tried all sorts of things, all sorts of services and programs and initiatives, et cetera. And it hasn't really moved the needle. Um, in my book, Race, Wrongs and Remedies, I basically take the attitude that there are some things people can only do for themselves. So I think it would be a big step forward if someone like Nikki Haley or Ramaswamy is the more likely person to say this, right? Well, did you see Vivek, did you see Vivek said, no, well, he, he actually went in the opposite direction. He, he said a few times, there's no black kid I grew up with who couldn't accomplish everything that I have um, as long as they had two parents. It was something, yeah, that was something Vivek, that was really that's really uh, no, Two parents would definitely help. So uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm not against that part, but, you know. Look, different people have different gifts. I mean, you look at the major tech companies, they seem to be disproportionately run by people of uh, what South Asian Indian heritage. So uh, different groups, right, dominate the economy in different ways, right? Uh, some groups dominate 7-Eleven stores, some dominate crack cocaine trade, other people, you know, dominate stand-up comedy, certain types of sports, right? Gifts are not evenly distributed among peoples. You know, for him to essentially take it to the mat and say, once again, everybody's equal. If things were right, if conditions were right, if we could just, you know, jigger the knobs and pull, push the right buttons, everything would be the same. That, that I think is taking the public in, in exactly the wrong direction. But your question is a very good one. You know, what would be the rhetorical approach um, that would move us towards where we need to be? And I think you have to start with what, what I term in my review, soft realism, right? So soft realism doesn't commit on nature versus nurture. It sets that aside. Nathan Kofta said that that's never going to be a bulwark against wokeness, but I, I'm not sure about that. You say, look, you know, different cultures, people have different cultures, different habits, um, different mindsets, behaviors, groups have different behaviors for whatever the source may be. And we refuse to concede that racism is the source of these differences. Mm -hmm. But one thing we have to understand, and I think even Nikki Haley could say this, although I'm not sure, because um, she's kind of a rhino. She's not my candidate. Um, but we don't know how to change the culture. We don't know how to change the culture as a society. And yeah. frankly, we probably are incapable of doing it because these changes yeah. have to come from within. And that was sort of what I said in my book. And if we could at least get there, that would be a big step forward, I think. But I, can you imagine well, a, a Republican candidate saying that? Can you imagine any politician saying that? Yeah, you have to be. I mean, you have to sort of. Yeah, I mean, they're not big ideas people usually, and you're right. They have to sort of the you know they do. It does seem like the you know the soft. I think I do think what you call soft realism is the sort of approach I take in the book. I talk about uh, differences in IQ scores. I talk about you're going to get these differences. I say I say at some point I think government can't fix them. So I think I do go sort of you know uh, in the direction that you want, and this is what I see uh, Charles Murray do too. I, I agree. So so, it's, so you're not calling for like I think you know I think we both think the genetic argument is extremely strong, and you're, but you're saying you don't have to lead with that. You don't have right. to, and maybe you never get to. Okay, so Amy Wax wrote a book review of Richard Hanania's latest book. Right, she titles it The Woke and the Asleep. Richard Hanania's book is bold and well-researched, but he underestimates how attached even right-wing audiences are to the egalitarian fallacy. And Richard Hanania's book is called The Origins of Woke, Civil Rights Law, Corporate America, and the Triumph of Identity Politics. And uh, Amy Wax begins a book review making an excellent point. Right, The founders knew that all men are not created equal, right? They worried about how to reconcile natural inequalities with the liberties they cherished in this new nation that was formed to overthrow traditional hierarchy, right? Alexis de Tocqueville noted Americans love equality, right? They want equality in liberty, and if they cannot obtain that, they want equality in slavery. So equality is now our official mania, motto, and obsession, increasingly pursued at the cost of freedoms that we once enjoyed. 
And uh, Amy Wax says that Richard Ananya's book is solid, but it misses the mark on the all-important questions of why the law exceeded its limits, civil rights law in particular, the wokeness train ran away, and why no serious effort was made to arrest these trends. Why did conservatives and Republican politicians fail to yell stop? Why did they tolerate and even support civil rights law overreach? Why, why, why? Do you even, I mean, you just say government cannot, you know, government cannot fix it. Maybe that's, that's all you need. Well, you certainly right? don't leave that... with that. I mean, I, I think soft realism is a two-step uh, argument. The first step, and as I suggest in my review, many people don't even take this step, is to acknowledge the mere fact of group differences, right? I mean, the fact of these overall pattern differences, differences in, let's say, crime rates, differences in behaviors, um, like crime rates or family formation. And then, of course, academic achievement. Well, academic achievement is a proxy for ability or intelligence. Once you get to ability intelligence, that's when people start to get very nervous, right? But the fact is that we do see these IQ differences. This is my favorite Amy Wax interview ever, and I've listened to over a dozen. Right. So just acknowledging these differences is a big first step, which a lot of people are not willing to take. I mean, some people are. And you do in your book, unquestionably, take that step. Um, the second step is to try and identify sources or causes, right? So then the, the soft realist would say, well, these are cultural differences. These are behavioral differences. Uh, we don't really know why they're there, but they're there. They're very intractable. They're intransigent. They're hard to manipulate from the outside. Uh, society can't really change them. They've tried. We've tried and tried. Uh, if they get changed, it has to be through some organic process from within, right, that is mysterious and, you know, spontaneous or whatever. Uh, and that's the second step of soft realism. Uh, and what Nathan Kofnis would say is, well, the problem is when you say that, um, go in front of any, you know, do-good or conservative audience and they'll say, well, we have to do, we have to try, we have to fix it. We have to change the culture. Yeah. Uh, what about this? What about that? Have we tried this? What about charter schools? You know, and, and you're, you're going down that road. I've talked to Heather McDonald about this because when she talks to audiences, mostly right-leaning, uh, she always gets this, right? They, they don't say that yeah. we can't solve this problem. We will solve this problem. You know, the moralistic fallacy, it, we have to solve this problem because we cause this problem. Well, that's the other hypothesis. We cause this problem. Therefore, we have to solve this problem. Um, but, you know, at least to have that discussion, that's a bridge too far for most people in the political sphere. Uh, and it is a discussion that is rarely had in academia. I would say, actually, at this point, it's never had. Uh, all of the conversation is outside of academia. Uh, but of course, if yeah. you take the next leap and become a hard realist, then you have to acknowledge the growing evidence, which I don't claim is conclusive or definitive, but it is growing and accumulating, uh, that there are innate differences of various kinds between groups. And of course, the academic establishment is hell-bent on ensuring that we... How could there not be innate differences between groups in that we evolved in entirely different circumstances, right? Through the forces of evolution, we evolve to survive and reproduce in a particular environment. Environments are different, and you have tribes of people who have evolved in the same place for tens of thousands of years, right? Why would they not have different gifts than people who evolved for tens of thousands of years in a different environment. We don't investigate these questions. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to an International Society of Intelligence Research meeting, uh, but it's quite a surreal experience. You've got a community of very, very smart and teched up uh, human genomics research types who are effectively trying to keep their head down and hide what they're doing, right? Uh, because they're afraid that the uh, progressive woke police will come after them. Uh, so it's going to be very hard to sort of nail down these differences, but the suggestion is there. I'm sure you're well aware 
of the data on this. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And I probably, I'm probably more convinced. I mean, I, pr I probably think it's even more conclusive than, than you are. You know, you need a theory to beat a theory. And I don't think there's any other theories that explain the sort of universality um, of the differences that we, uh, you know, that we see. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I, I do see sort of, I think the main, so what do you think that like the mainstream conservative sort of, I think the, the what my, my sort of impression is that if you talk about culture, like that really takes off with right-wing people. They really do like it. Even like, you know, like free press, Barry Weiss, intellectual dark web, sort of centrist types really, really will uh, like slab onto that and they love it. They'll share it. The genetics it really, really starts to make them uncomfortable. And I don't think it's just race. I think if you go to a racially homogenous country and you talk about class differences and you say some people, you know, the, the, the children of some classes are do better than the children of other classes because they're genetically smarter. I don't think there's many societies that acknowledge this. I don't know if there's any societies um, that really acknowledge this to any great degree. Um, and, and so like, you know, it, it seems like it is really, really an uphill battle to just get anyone into genetic, even if we didn't have a racial, even if we didn't have these racial uh, divisions in this country, it would still be part just because people don't like it. People don't like the sort of deterministic nature of it. Yeah, no, I, I can't disagree with you. I, I absolutely can't. I mean, I, I do not know how to get people to uh, not just accept because accept is you know pretty far along, but even think about this, right? To even think about, I mean, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation uh, and doing this podcast, I mean, this just marks us out as really dangerous and evil people. I think uh, that we would right. you know talk about this. Okay, you want the opposite of this kind of difficult but uh, profound conversation here between Richard Hananya and Amy Wax. Well, here's Decoding the Gurus on Douglas Murray. Can indulgent dinner conversation save our civilization? Oh, so Douglas Murray here, British conservative columnist, social pundit, veteran, culture warrior, famed for his biting wit and eloquent intellectual speech, but... How much of that is actually down to him having a posh British accent and a tendency to rant about Hello whatever bloody topic to he took a fancy to? A standard of the only person that sounds like Eric remembers, and he's talking about intellectual giants of the past and hmm. Christopher Hitchens, so on. Yeah, yeah. I feel like we shouldn't editorialize too heavily at the outset, but I think we're going to hear a lot more of this, which is that Eric really does lay it on pretty thick with the flattery. And uh, I feel like he does come on pretty strong with the flattery. It's almost as if, I hate to be cynical here, but it seems like a strategy where he does see Douglas Murray as somebody with a lot of cachet um, and someone he wants to be flattered by. And it feels a little bit like this is a way of building himself up by, you know, rubbing shoulders with the right people. Yeah. And like, I know we said we're not going to focus on Eric if we've started. Oh my, oh my God. <laughs> but listen, there's a good reason because... We so I, I basically agree with Douglas Murray about virtually everything. But I, I just have to honestly point out that he's just another partisan pundit, that he just uh, ties together a bunch of anecdotes and says the most right-wing things that you can possibly say while staying within an Overton window that permits him access to the mass media. And I, I agree with him, but I, I just want to point out how shallow his thinking is. And I, I just keep meeting people in sports bars who talk about how Douglas Murray is their favorite intellectual. Dennis Prager says that Douglas Murray is his favorite English intellectual. And his, his thinking is just shallow. I agree with it. But there's no depth there. We're letting Eric introduce Douglas. And so as a result, you know, it's impossible not to talk about the intellectual bromance that is blossoming <laughs> in front of our eyes here. And yep. I do want to highlight one thing, and then we'll, we'll, we promise we'll move on to focus on Murray, is that uh, the admiration, it's not put on. It's genuine because there's a couple of instances where Eric actually starts imitating Douglas's accent. <laughs> and, and that's a, you know, that's a indication usually of close friendship or admiration of the person. And uh, let, let me just play it for you because it was really noticeable to me. But... 
I think yeah. I think that holds. Oh yes, I guess it was after Shabbat. But it, yeah, but yeah. my point holds. Okay, that's one. You heard that, you know, oh, the, and and this is the second one. And that's that's the breakdown of the situation. My pussy, country. I should say, Douglas actually means cowards. Correct. Very much. So. Absolutely. Very much in a very real sense. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> the love is real, Chris. The love is real. I'm, I'm yeah. just going to say I'm never going to imitate your accent. Not in a million years. I, I'm waiting on this. Suppose you're <laughs> Belfast brogue going up here, guys. Um, where are my backpacks, Matt? Like I feel after listening to this conversation that I really don't get enough praise in our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, you know, you, you could, you know. You could become a hero of mine. You just have to work. Have to have to work for it a bit more. Yeah, and like so, we've talked a little bit off air about the fact that this conversation—it's a little bit hard to analyze because, in some sense, it's a super indulgent four and a half hour conversation amongst two guys that are friends and who largely agree with each other. And as such, it's kind of like analyzing somebody's, you know, dinner table chat. <laughs> but, it, yeah, yeah. But, but the thing that elevates it beyond that is the themes that they end up talking about and the claims they make, right? I mean, this is the defense of our civilization. It's not just a dinner table chat. Yeah, like this is, I mean, you're completely right about that this is largely typified by emptiness. The conversation doesn't really go anywhere and just sort of touches on things and then moves on to um, unrelated anecdotes and analogies. But this is exactly the kind of conversation that it feels like people will point to as the real serious talk where courageous people get, get to grips with the serious issues. So we almost have to look at it to check whether or not they do or not. Are you saying long form podcasting is the defense of civilization? The last line keeping us from the barbarians at the gate? Is that what you're uh, implying? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm definitely implying that. Definitely implying that. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's let's move on and see if all these laudits, 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 laudits that, that Murray is receiving are justified. So one of the topics that comes up early, um, which is a recurrent feature in a lot of the guru sphere that we look at, is the coronavirus. And the am I am I wrong? Is not Douglas Murray about the most praised right wing intellectual these days? And when I hear that from people, I just know that they're shallow. Uh, John Derbyshire, who is a man of considerable depth, notes Douglas Murray is a literary intellectual with no science. So he does not pursue obvious lines of inquiry. Response to it of institutions and elites. And in essence, the failure of that. So maybe I'll, I'll start us off with a clip to get a taste of where Murray is coming from on this issue. I have this very concerning thought that the pandemic was a wonderful first period. It was a period at first that was wonderful for science because it showed that science was, a, was perhaps the only thing left that we trusted. And actually, when the scientists appeared with the politicians, then we thought, okay, they're serious. It isn't like a newspaper columnist appearing with the politicians, but then yes. something happened. All right, we'll keep going. Nope, that's it. <laughs> nope. Maybe the, the follow-on clip would, would be necessary. I, I didn't. I'm guilty of this. I didn't spend much time thinking about pandemics, if any. And so when it came along, I, I like, I think most people thought, well, I'll trust the people who know. I do have now a very serious set of questions, I think we probably all do, and concerns. Not least on the fact that, first of all, the people who I and most of the rest of the public trusted turn out to have been wrong in significant ways. I'm thinking of things like the Imperial College study that predicted um, mortality rates at a level which you just haven't seen in any country, whatever the country's policy is. You, know, you don't see these figures in Italy, you don't see them in Sweden. Um, and when it turned out that those same people who I trusted and my fellow countrymen trusted had pulled the same graphs out with BSE, for instance, I started to get a sense of uh, ennui about this. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So he's got serious questions and concerns that ultimately are giving him a feeling of ennui. I'll, I'll, I'll let you go first on this, Chris. To take the reasonable position or the... Right, he moves from his feelings to then trying to sound like he's making a scientific critique, but he's just completely lacking in any scientific 
comprehension or, or background. And so he is a fool. Kind of strong version of the argument, right? Everybody acknowledges that various institutions and governments didn't react perfectly, right? Mistakes were made, policies were put in place that were counterproductive. And there's a range of debates that you can have about what the appropriate response is, right? It's a complex situation. There aren't one size fits all answers. That, I think that's a given. Sure, sure. But what Douglas does goes beyond that. And it strays into the realm of JP Sears and other people we've looked at, where he basically suggests that scientists got this completely wrong. They expected this to be a serious issue. And it just hasn't turned out that way. The virus is not as bad as predicted. People are overreacting. Mm. And basically, scientists just have constantly revealed how, how wrong they are. And that's not true. <laughs> you got that exactly wrong way around. The public are currently thinking, we did trust the scientists. They turned out to have led us into significant error. We're not listening to them again. Yeah. I mean, it, it's quite at this stage, it would have to be um, the plague, a, a child slaying plague, the Black Death, to make us listen to the scientists again. It's not true. No, I mean, given the situation, the number of people dying per day is it, the idea that the, the science, the mistakes in the early modeling and so on led to an overreaction and overestimation of the threat seems just totally absurd to me. Like that seems like a terrible take. Is, am I missing something? No, I, I mean, especially now, right? Because we're in a period where the UK and the US and a bunch of other countries are, are in severe difficulties and there's tens of thousands or in some cases, hundreds of thousands of cases, right? So the claim that this worldwide disaster has not materialized is not true. It has materialized. It's already killed over a million people yep. and infected much more than that. And this is something which didn't exist a year and a half ago. And, and, um, and in fact, with 2020 hindsight, it's, it's obvious that the initial reactions, if anything, were an underreaction. We would have been better off doing things. Okay, so this podcast was released on January 22nd, uh, 2021. There's an excellent post on, on Reddit. Uh, Douglas Murray's The War on the West is astoundingly bad. And uh, it's just the post notes. It's frustrating. Douglas Murray is referred to as an intellectual. He's regarded as a principled conservative who is above tribal partisanship, but his frequent dalliances with extremists are dismissed as guilt by association or attempts to stifle the free exchange of ideas. With regard to the content, I don't think Douglas Murray is much different from the Breitbart comment section. And I think that's accurate. Douglas Murray is essentially uh, a rarefied English-accented version of Breitbart's comment section. Right, A suit jacket and a posh accent seem to have convinced many people that he has something valuable to say. And uh, he can occasionally sound incredibly eloquent and he can make punchy points. Right, He's, he's very good at playing the pundit, but there's no, no depth. And his book, as you would expect, is a disorganized, right? It reads like a disorganized amphetamine-driven rampage through a big folder of bookmarked web pages labeled woke stuff. Douglas Murray's approach is to breathlessly recount one anecdote after another, usually dedicating just a paragraph or two to each, and then sneer at the people in the center of it, all the while complaining that criticisms of the West lack nuance and balance. About 80% of what I read could be encapsulated by imagining an extremely posh, unironic David Brent saying, that's not really racist though, is it? becomes a turgid slog quickly. Imagine 300 pages of this. It's like having much greater controls on international flights much earlier. Things like that would have helped an awful lot. And we, we got there eventually after a few months. And countries like Australia are with those controls managing. Yeah, my instincts are right wing, right? And, and Douglas Murray is about as far right as you can go and still be within the Overton window. So 
my inner tendency, right, is to accept and to agree with things Douglas Murray says. Now, sometimes they're just so stupid, I, I can't, such as his comments on COVID. But we, we resonate at the same level. We resonate at the same things, right? He's very pro-Israel. I'm very pro-Israel. He's very right-wing. I tend to be very right-wing, right? So it's just natural for me to agree with Douglas Murray, even when I have to recognize what a, a shoddy and, and shallow thinker he is. ...to avoid the large-scale infection and death that's happening elsewhere. So... If he's if he's hinting at the scientists causing um, an unnecessary overreaction, that just seems absurd. But the two things that's kind of grated on me, Chris, is is first of all this thing that our friend Aaron and Embrace the Void has called cheap talk, and that's using these phrases like mm, I've got these serious questions and concerns about such and such. Well, that's a very vague kind of statement, and it covers covers the whole gamut, doesn't it? It sort of hints that there's something fundamentally wrong, and and all the experts are wrong, and you can't trust the institutions and so on. But it also is vague in general enough to to encompass a whole spectrum of reasons. <laughs> Reasonable questions and concerns. Yeah. The, the other thing, the other thing that so what exactly is being said? Not nothing really. And the, the second thing that's annoying is the is this holding the experts and institutions to a standard of infallibility. So we just constantly see this where you know it's it's obviously it was obviously a very novel, fast evolving situation, limited information, you know the fog of war type stuff, and the, the picture gradually clears as time goes by. Meanwhile, you have politicians talking a lot of nonsense in many cases, just terrible takes, right? Like, and you've got the, the, the public armchair opinionators like, like Eric and Douglas giving any number of nonsensical hot takes. But that's not the standard by which they're evaluating the scientists and institutions. The standard that they're evaluating them at is just perfect infallibility. And, and any mistakes, and there are mistakes and things that are wrong. That's what research is, is like when you're doing it in a hurry. But they point those things out as if they're like a smoking gun, which they're just not in my view. Yeah, and it's noticeable that there's a double standard where when it comes to discussing Trump, for example, and the information that he... So with most uh, right-wing pundits, and I don't listen very much to left-wing pundits, so I, I don't know how bad they are, but there's just a, usually a complete disregard for, for facts and for, for basic research. And you find this throughout uh, Douglas Murray's book. He will use just a single source, a highly dubious source, like the philosopher Guy Sormon to uh, claim that uh, Michel Foucault would regularly rape boys as young as eight on the gravestones of a local cemetery. Right? And Douglas Murray would transmit this information just matter-of-factly without any suggestion that it could be suspect. Right? He likes to indulge in his QAnon insinuations, proclaiming nobody to date seems to think there is anything especially telling about one of the founding icons of the anti-Westernism of our time, having found personal pleasure in purchasing native children of foreign countries to satisfy his sexual desires, right? And then he says, why, why haven't these claims rendered Michel Foucault cancelled? Well, it's because they've been pretty convincingly debunked, right? Guy Sormann's timeline doesn't make any sense. Reporters in Tunis couldn't find anyone to corroborate the story. Details crumble under scrutiny. And then in an interview with a German publication, Solman admitted that uh, his knowledge of the matter was entirely indirect, just stuff that he heard, right? So Douglas Murray bases you know, a large section of his book on a single source who was recounting secondhand information he received in the 1960s and for which there is no corroboration that can be found for these most salacious claims, right? And uh, Douglas Murray considers all that a sufficient basis for publishing this. Michel Foucault traveled to the developing world to rape young boys on a tombstone in a graveyard at night. And he presents this claim service of the idea that the left has become dangerously irrational. 
in its efforts to sully the reputations of people whose legacies deserve a more balanced consideration. Pumps out. They'll tend to take a very charitable view to say, well, he didn't actually say you should inject bleach directly. You know, that's an exaggeration of what he said. So the, there's charity available, but it, it tends to flow along either right-wing partisan lines or another way to put it would at least be along contrarian lines, right? If everybody is criticizing Trump for handling the coronavirus badly, then you will take the position that, well, actually. Mm, yeah. And the point you made about the public and institutions. So here's, here's a little clip uh, making the contrast that Murray wants to draw between those clear. We can notice that everybody who went on the protest doesn't appear to have spent the, you know, the succeeding weeks in bed gasping for breath. This means that the people seem to know more than everyone who's speaking to them, including those in authority who are then left repeating a mantra that the public less and less believe. It, it, it is striking if they, if they can't deal with the, the complexities. Um, it, it, it's worrying when the institutions can't be as complex as the public are. So the institutions don't have the capability to mm. issue nuanced messages, but the public... Look, the average IQ of the public is 97, right? How, how nuanced can the public be, right, when the average IQ is only 97? Great comments in the chat. In substance, Douglas Murray has the same opinions as Tommy Robinson. He is just posh, and therefore respectable people listen, and he gets to publish books. And Laponius knows Tommy Robinson and Douglas Murray engage in magic key theories. It just keeps things simple for the simpletons. And I keep running into people, like respectable people, high-achieving people, people with 130 IQs, tell me Douglas Murray is their favorite intellectual. Why, why am I not their favorite intellectual? Like could certainly consume them. And I think that reflects, like, it is the case that sometimes messages are simplified down and don't provide enough nuance. But the notion that, for example, saying vaccines are not safe, but you should still take them, that first cause, for most people who don't understand what you're qualifying by saying not safe, right? And it doesn't mean that you shouldn't admit that there are side effects, but you, you have to be careful in the way that you word things, not to give the impression that vaccines are dangerous. Yeah, yeah, I know. Like, I think I must be in a... <laughs> I'm in a kind of grumpy mood this morning, so I'm, this afternoon, so I'm probably less inclined to hold my punches here, Chris, because honestly, their point of view is nonsensical. It seems like these guys would like public health messaging to be this like six page technical document with definitions and caveats and, you know, these long intricate explanations, all of this, this nuance that they want, for instance, providing the nuance that, oh, you know, drinking water is technically isn't safe. Um, you know, that's terrible advice. That's just stupid. From public health messaging. Yeah. From, from, from a public health messaging point of view. I'm also going to say it's contradictory because when you look at the advice issued by the World Health Organization or the majority of public bodies in the coronavirus, the fundamental advice has been relatively sensible. Social distancing, good hygiene practices. They were ambivalent or maybe too hesitant when it came to masks because the clinical evidence was mixed and they didn't want to create a rush on medical supplies. But, but that was only for a month or two. And, it, you know, people take that as apologetics, but I see it more as, you know, as, as a complete layman, as a person like Douglas and Eric sitting there. Yes, I think that public health bodies should have advocated mask wearing due to the principle of caution. And because I'm in a country where it's normal. But I also can appreciate that when you have mixed clinical evidence and you have different cost-benefit analysis to, you know, what you put in your public messaging, that some bodies reach a different... Right. What, what public health puts out through its public messaging is designed for an average IQ audience of 97. You can't hold that messaging to the same levels of intellectual rigor that you would a, a book by a professor written for other professors, right? Sometimes academics write popular books, but when they publish in academic journals, usually they're writing to their peers, and so they pitch their publications and their essays for an audience with an average IQ of, say, 
140, right? When they write a popular book, right, they're pitching it to an average IQ of, say, 105 to 110. Public health messages have to be pitched so that they work for people with 80 and 90 IQs. So, of course, these public health messages are going to lack in sophistication, right? It's like uh, complaining that your hawker doesn't read Shakespeare or that your drug dealer is not an observant Orthodox Jew, right? Different people ha have different gifts. Can't expect public health messaging, right, to have the same level of sophistication that, you know, peer-reviewed essays by academics for academics possess. In conclusion, and it doesn't have to be for nefarious purposes or for a desire to mislead the public. It can just simply be that they made a different judgment call. And you can criticize that, but you shouldn't act like it's inexplicable. Or, you know, Eric previously, and Douglas has done so in various articles, imply that it's due to a conspiracy related to China controlling the World Health Organization. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. The best way to have success as a live streamer and as a pundit is to pump out material that meets people's prejudices. Tell them what they want to hear. Say that, you know, COVID lockdowns and crackdowns and, and quarantines, right, all part of some, you know, vast Chinese conspiracy to drain out our vital fluids, right? There's an enormous audience waiting to hear that message. Just going to play a clip of them specifically talking about the World Health Organization because I, I think it helps uh, clarify why we might be frustrated. All right. So when you've got something like the World Health Organization, right, to, to be successful, they need access and they need to get along with hundreds of countries, right, completely divergent regimes. They need access to communist China and to capitalist America and to European socialist countries and to African dictatorships. So, of course, they're going to reduce their message to something that is ex ex acceptable, right, to wildly divergent regimes from communist regimes to uh, simply strongman dictatorships in, in Africa to European socialist regimes to East Asian regimes and South American regimes. A, a relatively small number of people knew that the World Health Organization was another of those international organizations that wasn't exactly what it called itself. But now a very large number of people know that. Uh, and again, we have this issue of residual institutional trust. Um, you, you saw this famous video with the I guess, Hong Kong journalist trying to ask this oh, yeah, yeah. person Absolutely. from the WHO, and he's pretending that he can't hear, and then she yeah. says, shall I ask it again? She's, he's like, no, let's move on. <laughs> That's right. and, and then he reaches for the, the kill button. Yeah. He's, this is a bad magic show that I'm forced to sit through. Yes. Um, uh, I know that's Eric bringing up that example, but I've heard it on so many of the podcasts we were listening to. That is a really good illustration to me because, you know, that's that famous clip that went viral where a WHO official was asked about Taiwan's response, right? And badly flubbed trying to avoid that question. It essentially tried to avoid making any political statement about the status of Taiwan and its response in comparison to mainland China. And it, the person who made that was somebody that was involved with mm -hmm. organizing the response or investigating the response in mainland China. Okay, the health official. Now, when I saw that, like everyone else, I saw how transparently the person was trying to avoid answering the question, mm. right? Yeah. But I also took that as, what did you expect? Like, you could have done it much better, but this was just somebody who is a health specialist wanting to talk about the virus in an interview and get messaging across. And then he gets hit with a question which he re correctly recognized could become a political talking point. And he, he tried to avoid it. So it's just to me. Right. He was in a tough position and he looked like an idiot. Right. Here's a news report on that. show has raised hackles in Taiwan by appearing to dodge questions about Taiwan's exclusion from the World Health Body. During an interview via video chat with a Hong Kong media outlet, Bruce Isleward, a Canadian epidemiologist, remained silent for about 10 seconds when asked if the WHO should reconsider Taiwan's membership. 
After their video hookup appeared to be disconnected, the interviewer called him back. This time, Iowward declared that if he had contracted the coronavirus, he would want to be treated in China. WHO considered Taiwan's membership. It's an awkward position for him because he lives in China. He works in China. He needs cooperation from the Chinese communists. Hello? So he's we, we, frozen. We, 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 okay, I, can't hear, I couldn't hear your question. Okay, yeah, let me, let, let, me, let me repeat the question. No, so. that's okay. Let, let's move to another one then. When Islewood was asked about Taiwan, he stalled for close to 10 seconds and avoided a reporter's question. But the reporter persisted. I'm actually curious on talking about Taiwan as well, on Taiwan's case. All right, so this uh, WHO official was in a very awkward position, and to maintain his work in China, he had to evade a question on Taiwan. That does not discredit the entire World Health Organization. Right? They have a difficult task trying to be acceptable in communist countries, autocratic countries, you know, countries all over the world. We decided to give Dr. Alward another call to follow up. And I just want to see if you can comment a bit on how Taiwan has done so far in terms of containing the virus. Well, we've, we've already talked about China. Iowood is an assistant director general at the WHO and is a Canadian-trained epidemiologist. Ever since the pandemic broke out, he has constantly sung China's praises. I left um, inspired and with a deep admiration. Right, because he lives and works in China and he wants Chinese cooperation for, uh, you know, the common Chinese people uh, that, that I worked with. If I had COVID-19, I want to be treated in, in China. Lin Shijia, the CEO of the Foundation of Medical Professionals Alliance, lamented that the WHO has been deeply poisoned by... Okay, so if it wants to be accepted in China, it means, right, that it uh, can't say nice things about Taiwan, all right? When uh, the United States of America recognized China... All right, they had to withdraw recognition from Taiwan. So you know, working as an administrative bureaucratic body, you know, with many different types of government, you have to make compromises and you get stuck in very awkward situations. All right, it doesn't discredit everything that the WHO does. It's not remarkable. Mm -hmm. That's yep. completely understandable why someone would do that. But it was taken as, well, that shows that the WHO can't be trusted on anything. And you're like, no, that, that inference doesn't follow. Yeah, it seems like uh, the standard procedure for these kinds of conspiracy theories, it's a bit like with the American stolen election. So much rests on some video in some counting office or something, which purportedly shows something damning. But it only shows that if you've got these special goggles on. Right. When I was talking about uh, claims that the 2020 election was rigged, how people would respond to my critiques is that they'd sent me these, these videos. Making a whole bunch of inferences. It's a complete non secretaire. So, yeah, I agree with you. I haven't seen that particular video, but that kind of reasoning and complete overblown interpretation of a relatively innocuous event is very familiar to me. Yeah. And in case people think that we're being unfair and reading too much into the sentiment that is being expressed, like you could read it as well, you know, look, they're just being critical of institutions. Don't you defend the status quo unthinkingly? So let me just illustrate how strong their anti-institutional sentiment goes. And then you get on the institutional one, which is that nobody, as you know, nobody in an institution now can tell the truth. And it's slightly worse than that, which is... I mean, just such a ridiculous overstatement. There were so many right-wing intellectuals like Douglas Murray that 
I just naturally had respect for because I didn't think too deeply about what they said. That it's just that, you know, what they said just resonated with my own political prejudices. And then COVID came along and it just ripped the mask off. And I saw their ridiculous responses to, to COVID and how they would just tell an audience what it wants to hear. And very different from the more, you know, measured, thoughtful critiques that were offered by a genuine intellectual Steve Saylor. I'm used to my saying stuff like that and then people calling me an extremist. Do you believe what you just said? Yes, I, mean, I, I don't doubt that. My, some... my, my phrase is almost everybody, particularly in an institution, is lying about almost everything almost all the time. That's where I believe we've got. Right. There we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in, the, in the previous clip, um, Douglas uh, uses that uh, cheap talk, um, hedging his bets. He, he uses the phrase, oh, we realized the WHO wasn't exactly what it called itself. You know, it's this nice vague language. But yeah, it's nice for them to be explicit. They, they, they're nice and explicit at least sometimes. Well, that's in the third or fourth hour, so I think many people have tuned out correctly by then. But they, you know, at the beginning, they're not that explicit. But I thought that is just that just summarizes the anti-establishment, anti-institutional philosophy of gurus and Douglas and Eric Sherrod. The difference is just in the tone and the way that they express it. Eric is more direct, yeah, but the, the sentiment is the same. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no, I think it, it's very it feels very self-serving as well because it relates to the previous point, which is that the institutions, the experts, won't pay the public enough credit and won't, won't give them enough credit um, and respect their intelligence by giving them you know sufficient detailed and nuanced account that, that truly respects their intelligence. Well, a lot of the public doesn't have that much intelligence, right? Remember, the average person in the United States, England, right? Australia has an average IQ around 97, 98, right? A 97 IQ can't assimilate and use a great deal of nuance. And also they, they lie all the time and are completely captured by various nefarious interests. So these techniques really are all about carving out their own legitimacy because who, who do you turn to when... Yeah. When there are, there's no one else out there who can, who, who can, or is, is willing to tell you the truth. Yeah. I think there's also an element that because Douglas Murray has an accent, which is an upper class British accent. Right. So what people like Douglas Murray and Eric Weinstein are engaged in is epistemic sabotage. They want to reduce the competing sources of information to elevate their own status. They want to tell you, oh, all the institutions are corrupt. You can't trust them, but yeah, you can trust my long form podcasts with, you know, people who have the same worldview that I do. That, you know, that's the prototypical accent associated with intelligence and education. Yeah. And education. So, you know, I'm not just engaging in anti-British sentiment or the well-trodden ground of Anglo-Irish relations here, but I definitely think it does a lot of work that Murray sounds so well-spoken and educated, even when he's making a really bad point. So let me just illustrate this. Still on the subject of coronavirus, here's Douglas talking about how he worked out that maybe the virus isn't as serious as we were told. I had friends at the beginning of the virus, you know, who, who got it. I have a friend of mine who's 94 who got it, and I just thought, oh, hell. And after a couple of weeks, you know, she called me back and told she was better. Yeah. And then, I, then that was one of the ones for me that made me think, oh, that's interesting. Because if it was what we thought it was, it would just that what we thought uh, sorry, okay, before we talk about the accent, <laughs> this is... Well, yeah, what the accent is saying is what's important. <laughs> Go ahead. Like that last phrase uh, where he says, oh, that's interesting. Hmm. You know, it's, I think sometimes they are explicit, but most of the time it's just constantly hinting that it's it's all a lie, that we're not being told the truth. It's actually not that serious. Um, I mean, that, that... Right, this is the typical epistemics of populism, and I do agree with populism much of the time, but populist epistemics, they... They value, you know, firsthand experiences and they think there's something fascinating or important with this one anecdote of a 94-year-old person who caught COVID and then got over it in two weeks. Therefore, COVID isn't that big of a deal. Right? That's really shoddy reasoning.
that, that is the subtext that, that underlies so many of the points they make, even though they don't follow through on it. They just, most of the time, they just restrict themselves to saying, oh, hmm, that's what I thought this, this is not, not, not quite what it seems, not quite what we, what we thought it was. The WHO isn't quite, isn't quite what it calls itself. So they, they tiptoe around it an awful lot. But if you listen to the whole thing, it's all pointing in the one direction, which is quite an extreme comment, given that we have like thousands and thousands of people dying every day from this. The point that they're making is that it's really not that serious and that it's beat up by the institutions for some nefarious purpose. It's just, oh, it's so irritating. But to get back to the accent, I mean, I've, I've said this about Douglas before that he delivers Daily Mail opinion in a Times accent. And it's it's quite amazing what the accent does. And this is another thing with gurus that Eric included in that they do have rather nice voices. I, I know the that, that upper class English accent doesn't do anything for you, Chris, but for, for the rest of the Agosphere and, uh, and the United States, which is the major audience here, um, it does sound... It's much easier to sound great. And you are strengthened when you're telling people what they want to hear. You feel good and you feel strong and you feel protected. All right, when you're giving a message that you know millions of people will resonate to, as opposed to when you're out on a limb, when you've made some mistakes, when you've misread situations, when you've when you've been unlucky in love, unlucky in work, unlucky in church, unlucky in shul. All right, when you're struggling, when you're not part of the in crowd, right, it will be much more difficult to sound so mellow and sound so commanding and to have such a beautiful, pleasant voice because you're not really struggling with anything, right? You will hear someone struggle when they are dissecting something difficult and they won't have the euphonious, melodious, beautiful voice, right? When they are genuinely pursuing truth. It does sound nice. You know, they sound very good and it could be sometimes difficult to put that aside and pay attention to really the quite nonsensical things that they're saying or hinting at. Yeah, and I've got some clips that I think show Murray somewhat leaning into, almost a stereotypical caricature of the upper-class British elite. We should get on to violence shortly, by the way, but but um, but before we do, can, can I suggest that I mean, there, there are... You can take over the show. You can no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm dream of it. Um, do you know how much work you would save me? <laughs> um, can I suggest that... But I will say that he's pretty much a master. And uh, Ricardo says over on Stephen J. James's channel, uh, Duvid, Duvid puts the butts in the seats. 50 watching now live over on Stephen James's show. Of innuendo. Like the point that you're making that he doesn't always directly come out, just raises a point and says, hmm, that's interesting. I don't know if you've seen the Dark Crystal, Matt, the Jim Henson. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I have seen it. I, yeah. You know, he sounds much more sophisticated than it, but it's a little bit like the Eggsy's guy, you know, that, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same effect, at least for me, you know, the upper class British accents don't do it for me. So yeah, I'm, I'm inoculated, <laughs> but I can still tell that there is something very appealing about the way he talks. But okay, be before we get to that, I want to also just note that that anecdote about the 94 year old friend who didn't die, it's not just the innuendo there. The logic is terrible, mm. right? Because the fact that you have someone that gets... Damn, Stephen J. James's show has been hit by a bot attack. I guess that accounts for a lot of the, the numbers. And uh, Ricardo says... That uh, it's when Duvid is preaching in shul, it, it brings out the haters. And they even get their own bot attack. Uh, disease, and they don't die from it. Doesn't tell you anything, even if they're in a high-risk category. That should be something that seems really straightforward and obvious. That's like somebody getting a severe cancer diagnosis and going into remission when they're in their 90s. And then someone saying, well, you know cancer they said it's bad but <laughs> this wouldn't be possible if it was what they said it is and the logic there is bad right like on the well it's too yeah i know it's almost too obvious to point out why it's bad but it, um, arguing from anecdote and not and not an actual data set is absurd and it's it's actually yeah, it's funny to hear these um logic and reason 
science guys uh, doing such a just an obviously stupid thing arguing from anecdote yeah and okay before uh, we we touch on a different subject i just want to play a clip related to the national health service in britain and how the reaction to the coronavirus has been overblown right so this was a couple of months ago but but just listen to this the beginning of this whole thing started in the UK, I think, in America to some extent. Uh, we had this thing of, we must protect the health service. You know, we must protect the hospitals by not being ill and going into them. Uh, of course, I mean, I and others said at the time, uh, you know, actually the health service exists to protect us, not the other way around. Uh, it isn't that we form a ring of steel around it, but that it's meant but to form it, a ring of steel around us. And then, I, then of course, you started to hear I know, that a, a grateful public was sort of sending donuts to doctors who had nothing to do other than spend their day eating donuts. I'm not saying in all cases. At the beginning, there was certainly a fight on in the front line. But since then, our health service has been moribund. Well, lucky, Douglas, that it's not moribund now. And, um, yeah, and, oh. but that's, you know, that's the same sentiment as look at the doctors dancing around. I thought this was supposed to be a crisis, right? And it's the same logic that when people show projections, and not all projections, you know, were accurate, but ones that were suggesting, okay, if we don't do anything, this is going to be very, very bad very quickly. And then when things are tamped down by uh, restrictions and, and various measures. Or just good luck, or even just some good luck, you know. Yeah, or, or even good luck, you know, certain uh, features of the virus or the weather, you know, whatever it is, mean that the, the worst doesn't come to pass. But their reaction is, well, then we didn't need to take any of these mitigating measures anyway. And like we're seeing now, yeah. the health services are not doing fine and managing fantastically, right? Where, where that happens, it's because of efforts to prevent the health service from being overrun. And if we weren't taking steps to do that, that's what would happen. Everything would get clogged up with coronavirus cases. Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I had to go to the hospital um, for some reason, I forget. That's right, I broke a tie. And you know, this was right at that point where there was a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty in Australia. And the people were avoiding going to hospital and probably being, maybe even being advised to to avoid it unless, unless necessary. And it was empty at that particular time. And fortunately, in Australia's case, it turned out that the various measures that were put in place here actually worked and are still working. So that's good. You know, that's good. That's like setting up like a mash field hospital um, just before a major offensive and finding out that you actually didn't need it that much. That doesn't mean... Right. Yeah. In California, early on in the coronavirus, the government set up uh, a ship offshore to deal with a flood of COVID cases, which didn't come. And the hospital facilities were sufficient to deal with the floods of coronavirus cases when they, they did come, but it's not a bad thing, all right? Um, whoa, I'm now a standard moderator for Stephen J. James. Whoa, I feel, feel honored. It's an honor just to be nominated. I realize I'm making the same point you did, but it should be obvious. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's an excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good enough to be made twice, I think. Yeah. Well, look, there, there's another aspect of this where, like, Douglas gets credit, including from me, that he is good at pointing out excesses of the left and inconsistencies and overreactions, right? And I think he does have a way of leveraging his outrage. We'll get examples of it in a bit about him going on. Yeah, voice f- physiognomy, right, does not necessarily fit with real physical physiognomy, but you can really get a an insight into somebody's soul just from listening to their voice. I feel on a 12-step meeting or when I'm working with recovery people, I feel like I get an immediate read on someone's level of recovery just from hearing their voice. There is a clarity and a strength that comes from people doing the 12-step work to get a handle on their own character defects that have been causing them so much trouble. On the other hand, you can get a read on someone's voice if it's just so so performative, right? Where it's just so melodic that uh, that they're put trying to put you into a trance, where they're going to tell you the stories that you want to hear. They're essentially 
relaying to you the equivalent of bedtime stories. Rants. Um, and he's good at that. But from listening to this episode, and I knew this from his book as well, but it was really clear in this episode, there's a lot of straw money of alternative positions. So let me, let me just play one clip which is related to people who were supportive of lockdowns. So this is him trying to get inside their psychology. We had a poll recently that said 70% of the public wanted curfews. Mm. I mean, either this plays to some deep sexual fetish of the British nation, which wants well, you to have be... many. <laughs> Don't need to tell me. <laughs> um, you, you either, it is either some desire to be dominated by the government and told you're bad and locked. Whoa, Ricardo has come on the Stephen J. James show. Let's hear. What I see of this whole thing is, is these, these ha- the, the analogy, analogy I would say that most white people think of when they think of like ultra-Orthodox Jews is like, oh, they're like Jewish Amish, right? It's like, that's the analogy. See, I just can't yeah. imagine Amish acting like this. Well, because right? they're like urban I mean, Amish. The urban, it could be like they, they were in urban areas. That's an interesting theory. I mean, do we think Amish live do on we like think that's true? Like, I mean, I'm not sure. Because I believe Amish that. came to America so early that they have like huge amounts of like farmland, like thousands and th- tens, even hundreds of thousands of like square miles. But these of, are these are hundred these are hundred fifteen IQ Jews. I mean, aren't these all Ashkenazi Jews? Yep, Their yes. Jews are astronomical. Yes. But I'm saying your average so why Amish, haven't they... Your average Amish have like 100 85 people. IQs. Yeah, but saying your average Amish have like 50 people per square mile. Like here no, the average in Amish Heights, has you have 30,000 people in a square mile. Or a higher. Amish breed, man. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think they just like yeah, successfully still, like, like, Amish build businesses. Three hundred people per square mile. It's not like the thirty thousand per. Square. I mean, the Amish strike me is probably well above average in intelligence. Square mile in Crown Heights. But but it's kind of funny to me. This like it's like the Jewish, or at least this in this sect of Judaism, which in some ways might be like more of like a fundamentalist sect, or at least fundamentalist. It is fundamental Judaism. Take it to its extreme doesn't result in like hardworkingness. It's like ultra scam. Okay, these students are wackos. They are not normative representatives of Chabad Judaism, right? They are people on the fringe, right? They're people who probably don't have a lot going for them in life, right? If they had a normal family, a normal commitment to family and to work, they wouldn't be engaged in this crazy Jewish tunneling. I mean, it's tunneling other other people's buildings. It's living off welfare. You know, like, it's just... It's like us versus them taking to the, the the logical extreme. They don't work, and yet they have eight kids. I mean, they're like ultra blacks. Okay, most uh, Lubavitch adult men are working. All right, they're not uh, majority of them on on welfare. All right, there is some abuse of welfare in the Chabad community, but uh, overwhelmingly Chabad Jews work for a living. Well, that's why. No wonder they're in the same political party. Did you get my point of this this guy David and saying like to some extent, Uh, Chabad Jews overwhelmingly vote Republican, except perhaps in local elections where there's some special deal made. Like even the pro pro Palestinian huge mass protests, to somewhat favor the Jews because like multiculturalism is one, immigration has one, and. Yeah, I don't think these massive Palestinian protests favor the Jews, right? Jews regard these protests with tremendous fear. Who's going to do something about it in Crown Heights? So, like, when you have the negotiation between, like, uh, the black leadership 
in New York City. How do you think they're going to handle this? Oh, I think, dude, I just was in New York City like over Christmas, and like I saw more, I saw, I saw a uh, a menorah like in every window, and I mean, you know, and like there were no there were no Palestine protests. I mean, it's it's like outrageous. To- Why? Because David, I mean, Ricardo doesn't see Palestine protests. He therefore, because he didn't see them, that therefore they're not going on. I think that like, oh, you know, Jews are cowering in New York. I mean, it's there's no question that I I don't think any of these guys are going to prison. But like, what's the? I, I'm sure there are Jews cowering in New York if there's some massive amount of crime. And uh, I would not expect Jews to feel particularly safe if there's some massive Palestinian protest outside their door. Uh, on the other hand, I don't agree with the hysteria that uh, Jews are, as a group, you know, under attack in America. Right? Jews have never had it so safe and so good as they have it in the United States today. Connection. I mean, I guess for the audience's education, I mean, this is like the breeding. This is like we're all the Jewish ethnicity perpetuates itself because secular Jews do not tend to reproduce or they outmarry, right? I mean, this is like your future. Correct. About 80% of secular Jews marry non-Jews. Secular Jews have a very low birth rate, right? Modern Orthodox Jews on average have about four kids. Traditional Orthodox Jews have on average seven or eight kids. Banking class coming out of here. Well, yeah. Management. This is, this is young man. This is like junior executives. This is the, the future of management in America. Right. Well, okay. Like Jews don't really subside on minimum wage labor, but you have your urban core of basically below the poverty line Jews that subside on government aid and charity. So like in crown Heights, like, yeah, you have these, these are your replacement for, you know, God forbid the kids that Duva didn't have. So like Crown Heights, they're bursting from the seams. Like you got the you know, Jews popping out of the sewers, God forbid. There's so many of them that even though, you know, God forbid Duva didn't have kids, like like these people are just ready to replace me. And uh, and he's saying they're stuck in Crown Heights. They're oversaturated. They're poor. They're uh, you know, crowded. They're, they're living among African-Americans. They're getting beat up constantly. They're going to go wherever, wherever, uh, wherever they're sent. So, you know, if they come to Detroit to replace the kids that Duvin had, Duvin didn't have, or they go to L.A. to replace the kids that Luke didn't have. Um, yeah, to some extent, it, it does work like that. Like these, these the, like the poor urban core of ultra-Orthodox Jews will eventually, uh, you know, become at least part of the, like the diaspora Jewish elite. Is uh, Duvin telling us that these children are springing from birth tunnels? And like, you know, they, they, like, you know, say, okay, like, yeah, I grew up in Crown Heights and whatever, however they made it to, uh, you know, your local neighborhood. And it's similar to like the, the Mexican, you know, the Mexican that, uh, you know, crossed the border and got on a bus and struggled a few years in New York and then eventually made it to your local neighborhood where they, you know, lived the American dream by, you know, by, uh, demographically replacing you right but like you're a property manager you're dealing you're dealing with rents i mean if 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 uh if a group of uh these guys move into your neighborhood is that better or worse off for you than like the blacks like oh for for real estate values 
the comparison. All right, anytime you get a Jewish neighborhood, all right, the real estate values go way up and crime goes way down. Your property values. Like if we're ranking, if we're ranking, like Hispanics, blacks, and and ultra orthodox Jews, like who do you want as your neighbors? I mean, they're all generally coming from the welfare class. So like they're they're not coming as rent payers. Um, I mean, so you have the. I mean, did you agree with my? Uh, Lubavitch Jews are not overwhelmingly coming from the welfare class. It may be above average, but it's not like it's 60% of Chabad Jews in America. Assessment of the reverse settler colonial project. You know, I was, uh, I've been working on my garage. Uh, I wasn't able to listen to this whole thing live, unfortunately, but, you know, I mean. But you do see the reverse settler colonial project of the new globalist empire. Yeah, yes, yes. Our cities, yeah, 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 yeah. The third world is colonizing the cities, yes. Well, no, they're, they're, the, the, the settler colonialism is the red states. So they're not, those people are, are largely like the migrants. Uh, they're largely living off of charity, and they don't yet provide a net positive economic value. So the ones right. that make it to your neighborhood first have to go through some sort of assimilation progress to where they could become a net positive. So it could be like Babs or something could like uh, you know don't live in the don't live in the you know the tunnels and I'll train you to be a mortgage broker and like after two years of tutelage under Babs he could uh, you know move to your neighborhood and become like a mortgage broker. Um, okay. The same way that the Hispanic guy like after two years of like 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 slum like slum like slum dog millionaire. Employer. So like, slum like dog you will help out in the reverse settler colonial project. I mean like the hundred thousand Hispanics now in new york city thousands of them will be good workers and if they are good workers you will hire them and you will bring them to your neighborhood and you will put them into you will help the demographic replacement because that's the economic uh, model yeah i uh i don't know so you still didn't answer the question do you want to live next to these guys or black guys i live next to black guys i live in majority but i live in a So black guys trump these guys. <laughs> well, the ones in my neighborhood. So like relatively Metro Detroit, the area where the Orthodox live is poor area. Um, I mean, there are Jews in my neighborhood, but not like the black hat types. Uh, and it's they're largely priced out of it. Um, although some of, you know, there's some. But you have to move into. It's not just like you're Jewish, you're rich. You have to. uh you have to have the value proposition. I mean, you could succeed in any of the major professions, real estate, uh, insurance brokerage, mortgage brokering, stock brokering, uh, middlemen, uh, import, export, so on and so on. But it's not just like natural. You're not going to come straight from the tunnel network. So a lot of Orthodox Jews I know are making their living from e-commerce these days, like working with Amazon. Work to like an import, export business. But you could, uh, you could work your way up, and the ones that work their way up uh, will eventually make it into my neighborhood or better. But by the time they get into my neighborhood, they're going; they're not going to be you know like a uh, uh, like that anymore. I mean, just like okay, like Duvid. When I worked for the Hasidim, I took Hispanic guys straight off the street, and wait, well, cleaned them out, cleared them out. You're like this is our neighborhood. What's this? Some kneecaps. No, God forbid. Like I, I, I took the van 
and I got like six in the morning to a street corner and uh and and I gave him work. Rounded up a bunch of Mexicans. Oh, okay. Work work for construction, but it's saying there were low level jobs where you could take just a guy off the street who may not have any skills and he could do like, you know, schlepping or dismantling or you know, carrying things to you know, sometimes you'd have to ask him, like depending on what you need. So if you need someone with like some carpentry or tile skills, you could occasionally pull up on the corner and then once you've uh, got a few skilled guys, you can get their number, their contact, or they could bring you uh, directly. But like still many times, like if it was low level labor, I just went to the corner where they stood and picked them straight up from the street for a day's labor. Uh, but you know, then and for, you- for those that aren't and for those that aren't Americans, that's day labor. That's how we put illegal immigrants to work. It's illegal. It's you know. Do they have that in your neighborhood? advantage? Uh, not. I you're mean, saying, you're saying I live away. I live that? away from. I I try to live away from this the Seven Elevens that they collect at. Yeah, but I, I but, can't imagine that it's more than five ten miles from wherever you are till some place where uh, Hispanic day labor. Oh sure, from. there's definitely a there's definitely a Spanish area. There's Spanish you're areas. So you've never once done that in your life? Picked up Hispanic day laborers? Um, yeah, of course. But like, yeah, of course, like of a, course. Like that's my business. Well, no, I, I, I mean, I, <laughs> no, but I mean, like to come to come work in my yard, not to like you know be the illegal immigrant broker. I mean, I I know it's those kinds of immigrant, but we're saying just what you, it's you like. It's these... like human. It's like human. Tra- it's like a pimp, man. Anytime you're in the black market, like if I'm dealing in illegal labor, it's just an dealing, unsavory situation. You did, you did yard, simple, unskilled labor. Where you wanted the cheapest price, or you want hard work, so you went to where the Hispanic day laborers stood. You filled up a. Car I mean, I haven't actually, I haven't actually been. Let me. I have participated. I have not been the actual person to like make the decision to go get the Mexican and pay him. But what I have participated saying? in that. You're saying that. I'm, you I'm saying that over over my lifetime, I. I used to work as a mover, and I would go to, uh, wherever you pick up Mexicans to. Uh, help you Home Depot and the equivalent to help me move people. So I used to drive a one-ton van and that was a tough, tough job. I've worked in on construction crews or in situations or had projects that have involved these guys, but like, you never picked you know, them up. You never, I never to- pick them up. I, they're not, I'm not paying them. No. Yeah. I, now, mean, I never paid them myself, but like, yeah, I picked them up like 50 times. And I've worked hundreds of times, but I worked in more skilled labor where they're all Hispanic, but they weren't coming from some of these guys started on street corners, uh, but some of these guys were making like a hundred thousand dollars a year and eventually became subcontractors, but they started on street corners and, and like relatively that guy who started on a street corner and eventually became a subcontractor. And then like, I got to get the hell out of you know, eventually was able to get a family and married. So I, I think uh, Latinos deliberately you know, restricted their, their crime rate so that, uh, non-Latinos would feel safe going to Home Depot or the equivalent to pick up uh, Mexican day laborers, right? If uh, Mexican-Americans had the same crime rates as African-Americans, all right, uh, regular Americans outside their group would not feel comfortable picking them up and putting them to work. And then, like, I got to get the hell out of the city, uh, but then he's already got a skill and he could move into any place across the country and uh, you become, uh, that's similar to the Judaic process where, <laughs> what, what I was saying, it's similar. That is saying these guys are eventually they're not going to become day laborers like that, but like a lot of them will eventually become insurance brokers, mortgage brokers, real estate agents, deal makers, of, recruiters. Yeah, import, deal, some of them might even become landlords. <laughs> <laughs> well, God forbid. 
what it's like that someone I spoke I know, to it's a way to make money without working. It's 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 would you say that the ultra is like how do I make, make money, money without, without working? working? Whoa, whoa, whoa. A landlord has to put in a, a lot of effort. All right. It's not it's not a way to make money without working. All right, let's get to the more highbrow decoding the gurus edition of Douglas Murray. Can indulgent dinner conversation save our civilization? Down like you know. I won't extend the metaphor. No, I think you should, because our ratings will soar, sir. But you <laughs> also might be banned from YouTube for explicit content. What? Um, <laughs> well, we're headed that way anyway. Sure. Um, uh, but, but it's either that or, and this is how I read it. Yeah. People tell pollsters this. They even tell their friends that. But they really think that, that, the, that the lockdown, that the curfew is for other people. Yeah. And like the guffawing. There's actual, these are actual people who guffaw. I, I, I haven't come across that many people in my life who guffaw, but they do. But the, the notion that people are supportive of curfews or lockdowns or that kind of thing because of a desire to be dominated or because of a weak character, rather than just they have a fucking genuine concern about yeah. a global pandemic killing their relatives and destroying the health service. It's, it's such a caricature, but they present it as if what could explain this bizarre psychological quirk that people would be willing to make sacrifices. And, and that actually fits with the NHS point because Murray mm-hmm. reeling against you know, the NHS and we are supposed to be the ones protected by it. It actually feels to me he's pretty out of step. You know, he's claiming to speak for the people. But speaking as someone who grew up in the UK and who watched the reactions at the beginning of the pandemic and throughout it, people treat the NHS as a sacred value, as something to be proud of that is associated with Britain. That's why it featured so heavily in the Olympics opening thing. And Murray presenting it as people are resentful that actually they didn't need to do anything. And it's really the NHS's job to protect us. No, I think the clearer public sentiment is that people respect what doctors and nurses are willing to do and, and they want to help them yeah. by making sacrifices if they can. Yeah, it does feel like he's channeling that, what feels like a modern conservatism sort of sentiment there, which is kind of dismissing those traditional values of contributing to the community and making sacrifices for the greater country or community or whatever. It seems to be talking to that modern or postmodern conservatism, which is really one of entitlement and, and one of resentment. Yeah, at a time of some influenza outbreak, Right. Restricting your socializing, restricting the number of people that you interact with is a pro-social motive, right? Practicing some restriction on what you want to do for the good of the people around you and to save lives strikes me as laudable. That the country isn't delivering enough to you that you deserve and you shouldn't have to do anything to support it anyway. It's, you know, I agree. You've, you've made this point before about the loss in modern conservatism of this sense of civic duty. Yes. Right. Yeah. And it's somewhat ironic because a large segment of this discussion between Douglas and Eric is waxing lyrical about the stiff upper limb, lip and people having the chance to demonstrate their formidability in the face of a crisis. To demonstrate the, the British spunk, Chris. When the pandemic first came and we did all think, or a lot of us thought as we were told that, you know, we'd, we'd be losing a lot of our loved ones, mm. that that was an even more important uh, um, impulse. Uh, okay, this is, this, is going to, this is going to sort some of the wheat from the chaff, you know, this is going to reveal the Stoics in our society, you know. Right. Um, and I can't say that I was entirely I know, gloomy about the prospect, but I thought in some ways, I mean, that's a, that's a generational challenge in that case. And um, it's an invitation to seriousness, you know, above anything else. Uh, it'll clear debris away. It'll give us greater clarity. And then, of course, among much else, the fact that the virus turned out not to be what we thought it was at the beginning. Yeah, and this gets, I think this gets to a thing that you find interesting about memorizing classic literature or poetry yes. in order to steal yourself against the vagaries of modern society. So here's Murray outlining that. My point is that this, the knowledge that you'll need stuff, that it'll fortify you through your life, is a very deep instinct with me. And so when people say, you know, it's worth memorizing in order that you keep your brain um, 
going and, and it's a useful cognitive exercise. Things. And it's not, it's not just that. It's, it's, you know, part of the purpose of it. In fact, the most important. Right. It's just so performative. All right. It's just, just putting something on, trying to get across a level of depth that the man does not seem to have. One purpose is you need to steal yourself for what's coming. Steal yourself for what? Yeah, kind of a test of character or something. Yeah, and this leads to quite a few examples during the conversation where both Eric and Murray, it feels a little bit like they're competing against each other to quote lyrics or snippets from classical text. So I'll just play a short little montage of some examples of that. A favorite version of the question, the biggest question, which comes up in Rilke in the, the Duino Elegies. Uh, he said, Rilke says somewhere in there, um, does the outer space into which we dissolve taste of us at all? Oh, that's beautiful. I don't know that quote. Oh, and uh, here's Eric. You know, there's a lyric um, in a Bob Dylan song, which I'm very partial to, uh, where he says, buy me a flute and a gun that shoots tailgates and substitutes. And then the line is, strap yourself to a tree with roots because you ain't going nowhere. And I think about this idea of the tree with roots. Yeah. What is it that has survived two world wars? I love, I love the indulgent, you know, yeah, that is a deep, you know, makes you feel bad. One more laugh for you, one more. Pasenak, by the last day, everyone says, you've, you've got to say something. And Pasenak gets up onto the, the, the podium and, uh, and s says one number and everybody rises. Uh, it's the number of the Shakespeare sonnet, went to the sessions of sweet, silent thought, I summon up remembrance of mm. things past. And Pasenak did the translation of this into Russian, which I say is as beautiful as any of the words in English. Mm. Yes. So that's just, those are just, you know, a little snippet uh, or a sample of the recitations and references that you get in this but yeah and, and they're all being used to make a point but it definitely does feel like a big part of the point is i can remember and recite things with gravitas yes that really is that um at, at one point douglas recites a large part of a shakespeare shakespearean sonnet and it, you know that's nice and it was tangentially related to what they were talking about but yeah it really does feel like a lot of what they're doing is to just create that impression amongst the listeners of what erudite and fascinating people they are. They're, they're quite uh, kind of relevant, but they don't really serve much of a function. For instance, when he um, quotes that sonnet, it's the, the broader point they're making is that it's a shame that people are using their devices so much these days and the internet and just Googling information. It's really important that we memorize knowledge um, and, and be able to distort it in our brains. Because if you ever find yourself locked up in a gulag or in a prison or something like that, then you'll have the ability to, you'll have the mental resources to keep yourself entertained. That, that, that sounds like I'm being unfair in summarizing. Okay, point, let's actually, uh, welcome Elliot Blatt so, to the show. Oh. Elliot, what's going on, bro? Oh, <laughs> blessings, bro. Are you living hey, bro, the I'm dream? A, <laughs> I've been feeling down too, man. Yeah, well, so I'm am hearing, I, bro. I've got uh, duvet in my ear too. Wait a second. I have <laughs> a am I not enough for you, bro? I don't know what's, I, I, I don't even know where it's coming from. Uh, we've all had that. We've all had David in our ear and not knowing where he coming it's coming through from. you. Is he coming through no, you? No, he's not coming through me, bro. Oh, no. Sorry about this. Do you, do you want to fix it and come back? Yeah, yeah, if I could. I want Just you to be at your in, best. Come, come right, back. Come back in two minutes. Right. Yeah. Okay, right, bro. Right, okay, thanks. bro. Blessings. Yeah, to make a pretty dumb point like that. Yeah. Yeah. For one, let's hear Murray explain that point because there's a beautiful thing which happens shortly after, which I, I just felt was poetic justice. But so I'll play that now, the first of them. Particularly since the uh, pandemic. Yeah. I have found myself telling my friends to put bloody phone down. Yeah. No, I don't want you to show me the thing on the screen. I want you to tell me. Yes. Okay. I don't need to see the video. I'd rather that you describe it to me. It'll be more fun. I haven't, I haven't encountered this. Before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he, he goes on a little bit of a rant about, you know, people losing the art of face-to-face -face interaction and conversations. But later, I just enjoyed this because he's basically saying, you know, people don't memorize things. They just, they just rely on technology and the, it's a lost art. And then uh, this happens. Um, what is it? Uh, um, 
um, the uh, at the nineteen thirty seven Writers Conference in Moscow, um, uh, the uh, the Russian novelist who now why have I blanked on the name suddenly I have to edit that. Um, why have I okay, Elliot, what's yeah, uh, um, what's going on, my know. man? Um, yeah, well, you know, you said you. Uh, just, uh, I'm hitting a lot of bad luck, a lot of uh, negative events in my life lately, and I'm just kind of feeling down. And it was interesting to hear that you said that you're going through a, a down patch as well. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. yeah, a lot of things things going wrong, and just a lack of feeling of confidence, and yeah. a lack of feeling of confidence in my own ability to discern reality and and how did I misread this situation and that situation? And maybe I should have done this and maybe I should have done that. And it's just so raw. I don't want to talk to anyone <laughs> except, except in a more distant, except for in this distant way. Like I, I thought about genuinely calling you and reaching out, but I didn't want to, like, I feel yeah. much more at ease doing it in this setting where it's not going to get as raw. Yeah. Um, it's very funny. We must be like in the same sort of, astrological cycle or something um but i had a bunch of different things but like and then that's cherry on the top you know this friend i've been talking about yes uh, that i have problems yes. with no no not that one the the alcoholic one yes okay so i just learned on facebook he his brother got killed in a car crash this past friday wow and it was like ah, oh, it was just such a blow i mean this is this guy's like uh, just became a grandfather. He was absolutely a mensch. And it just, just came out of nowhere. And like it was so depressing. And I haven't felt the same since finding out about that. And this is on top of a lot of other negative things that have been happening. And so, you know, I used to just take my sort of upbeatness for granted, you know, and you know, life can uh, deal Knock with it out of you. Yeah. Like I normally I only stream when I'm feeling up uh, usually and and this is an exception because i can present my feeling down in an up way <laughs> but but like i, I yeah yeah it, yeah it, I'm, I'm happy to share like feelings of frustration and anger yeah. <laughs> but like actual real pain is just no, no. it's something else you know and so i've been uh you know uh I'm just kind of going through the motion. It's just hard to sort of keep up the, the work pace. And, yes. Like it's know. hard for me to do the right thing. Like that cold shower this morning was absolutely excruciating. I just did not have the strength as opposed to if I'd been winning at life, I would step into that cold shower with the attitude. This is one more example of how I'm a winner. But when I'm losing at the game of life and I get into the cold shower, it, it just is five times more painful and more difficult and every right step going for a walk, right? I, I'm taking streets so I don't run into people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so let me just tell you like another, so yesterday, a couple Monday, I had to go downtown and I had to park in this underground garage and I'm, um, you know, I'm feeling down and everything. And so I take the elevator down to where I think my car's parked. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I get to the spot where I think my car is. Now, it's very confusing because there's three levels and they all look identical. And I get to the spot where I think I'd parked my car. I didn't note it down. I just figured, you know, I could do it myself. And I went, and the car was gone. I didn't, the car wasn't there. And then I looked carefully. It was, there was a handicap sign. 
there and my car's gone oh and i'm like oh my god my car's been towed you know like yeah and i'm like i can't do i can't take this right now i'm not equipped to deal with this and like everything just starts collapsing in the world starts spinning you know and i'm just running around going from level to level going doing a grid search just trying to find my car thinking I could have been this stupid. I never do this, you know, and the, the signs that are painted on the uh, parking spots are sort of that light blue that handicapped signs are. Mm-hmm. So I said, so I made up this scenario in my head, like it's perfectly plausible that I just didn't recognize that blue sign as a handicap sign. And then, so after about 15 minutes of frantic scrambling, you know, I said, wait a second, I've been here for two hours. What is the chances someone's going to tow me for a handicap? Aren't they just going to give me a ticket? You know, I started, my rational faculties started coming back into play. Yeah. And I said, oh, it's actually pretty likely that my car is still here, you know? And sure enough, you know, after another 10 minutes of searching, you know, not feeling much better, but I knew, you know, I, I really was basically... Prior to that, thinking that I was resigned to the fact that my car had been stolen, it would be like 900 bucks to get it out, you know. And so ultimately, I did find my car and it was in a perfectly legal spot and it hadn't been towed. Uh, but <laughs> it just shattered me, Luke. Yeah, the catastrophizing. <laughs> yeah. It's just harder it's... to navigate life when you lack any confidence in your ability to discern what's real and true and dangerous and good and. When you yeah. lose that confidence, every decision becomes you know, so much more difficult and you know, every pain becomes magnified. Like when you're doing well and you cut yourself, like you, you, know, you just put Neosporin on it and you go on. But when you're struggling and then you snub, stub your toe on top of it, it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh, far. Yeah. And that, like little things like, you know, I, I go into bed, I'm feeling down, I go get in bed and boom, my cat is thrown up in the bed. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like just demoralizing. That. <laughs> so anyway. I just took well, to bed basically on Tuesday, but I just took to the floor. I just like hmm. lay on the floor, listen to audiobooks, and I wanted to cry, but I couldn't even cry. Like I couldn't do anything. I was in shock. I, I, I just, I didn't want to talk to anyone. I couldn't do anything. Um, I forced myself to go for a couple of walks. And other than that, I was just useless. Yeah. You know, I, I've been vegetarian since January 1st. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I, I know you wouldn't approve, but I figured I would try it again. I wonder if it's cool. I, I wonder if it's, uh, you know, causal. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the, right. Vegetarians are notoriously depressed. Yeah, but you know, other health problems go away when I eat veg. Yeah, so you got to kind of balance the balance them up. Are you taking yeah. the beef organ capsules at the same time? No, no. I'm I'm eating a lot of cheese. Um, a lot of my my appetite's been down too, and I've been sort of losing weight just because I've been down and not eating much. Yeah. Um, but this is like. Uh, I, I'm just sort of taking my mood to be a given, you know, and suddenly you, you don't realize that that's actually a gift, you know, and it can be taken away. And when it's taken away, it's, you can't just will it back into existence. So, Do you have uh, blood sugar issues? Do you have good blood sugar test scores? I don't actually test them, but I would imagine I do because 
Uh, I don't eat much sugar. And, you know. When, when did you last test for your blood sugar? I honestly can't remember. I don't know if I've ever done it. Okay. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm like that other guy that you mentioned that sort of the, 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 the author you're talking about with, um, um, the, the medicalization of the medical, life. Yeah, the medical, exactly. Right. I've always sort of had that sort of naturalistic attitude. We've, we've, we've scrapped, we've, uh, we've squabbled over it, but, but I mean, there are strong arguments in the direction you talk about because for millions of people, they'd be much healthier if they ate better and took fewer drugs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, you know, I've talked about this in the past, but this macrobiotics stuff I was talking about a couple of years ago. And in that book, this guy is Japanese. He was prophesizing that if this trend continues, people will look like zombies and devils, you know, in their face. Mm-hmm. And if you walk around downtown San Francisco and you look into the, these faces of these drug addicts and even people who aren't you know, explicitly drug addicts, everyone just seems unhealthy. And it's it's almost like you you sort of catch it by osmosis, and I, I really feel like you know we've just been degraded uh, nutritionally as people, and I think the chickens have come home to roost. So, what's your philosophy on carbs? Um, you want to limit them, but you don't have to. I'm not a keto fanatic. I tried keto for a couple of months years back, and that just did wreck, wreck that cratered my mood like really depressed so i did lose weight um but my mood was uh just really flattened by it and so i, I just decided it wasn't healthy for me but uh, but, but let's so, get yes. specific what what kind well, of percentage of your calories you want to get from carbs for me i want to keep it to below 50 percent i, I well, think that's what i'm shooting for well to me it's not the carbs aren't so much as important as, as, as long as they're taken with fiber. So if you're getting your carbs from vegetables or rice, it's much better than getting them from, you know, obviously refined sugar, even fruit juice, uh, because the, the fiber sort of is like a timed release mechanism for the uh, sugar in the carbs, the, car- the carbs turn to sugar or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't feel like you need to count carbs or obsess them on. And I think even the obsession on them is a little bit unhealthy. Um, So to me, if I have like a solid salad with every meal, you know, every major meal, which is basically once a day for me, I feel great. But it takes a lot of discipline to keep that up. So I can go for weeks, even months at a stretch. But then once I fall off, then I sort of resort to uh, pasta. And stuff like that, which is just not helpful. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I don't know. But it's also the weather's been shit here. Well, it's been it's been rainy for weeks and cloudy and it's just terrible. I, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, so. it's it's very sunny. Uh what's that what's that banging and rumbling going on in the uh, it's my keyboard. It's my I'm okay. fidgeting on my keyboard. Um uh, so Anyway, um, I did have an insight about the way uh, the way this whole immigration thing is going to play out, mm-hmm. and it's to me it's sort of around resentment, and I don't know, I, you, you know, we both have the same view on immigration, 
But what's going to happen over time is like there's going to be haves and there's going to be haves nots. And the have nots are going to, if you're perceived as a have, um, people are going to be angling against you. And they're going to see you, start to see you as a target. And you're going to have to sort of doubt your um, interactions. You're going to have to be very, very uh, discriminating about who you let into your personal orbit. Yes. Um, because, you know, as things get more and more tense, um, you could start having like just you know, secret enemies and people sort of angling against you. And it's just a whole new la layer of bullshit that it's just going to make life a lot more difficult. So this is what's been bringing me down, actually. Some of the things I've been thinking about. Anyway. Now, I don't know if these are actually happening, but um, I do. I just you look into the faces of some people and it, there's just there isn't the radiance that there used to be that I'm accustomed to seeing in people at least, you know, decades ago. Yeah, I mean, the, the more illegal immigration we have or just the more immigration we have or just the more diversity so that we have less less in common, then the more incentives you have to put up your guard. And guarded yeah. people are really radiant, right? There's, there's radiance and then there's guarded and they're basically right. opposite. And so the great thing about having a community of like-minded, you know, strongly identifying in-groups such as within... Orthodox Judaism is that you can basically let your guard down and just be who you are and be with people who share a similar approach to life with what you have. And it's just, it's just incredibly relaxing. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can see that. And I never really appreciated it until now because, you know, I used to always sort of have, you know, kind of a large friend group and that sort of seemed like enough, you know, but people have been moving away and uh, that lack of, I'm, you know, noticing that lack of community, I guess. And these and, streams and things have been sort of a, a uh, you know, a simulacra for that type of stuff. Uh, but it's parasocial and not truly social. And, and it's hard, it's hard to be happy when the Palestinians are suffering. <laughs> yes. And like, uh, I don't know. I used to have a lot of openness towards strangers and I'd get take, take it advantage of. And yeah. now I'm just feeling myself locked down and get into a more defensive posture. Now, I don't, you know, this just could be me getting older or, but. No, I, I, I said the same thing. Like I, I was wondering for weeks and months why people treated me so disrespectfully. And then I realized I portrayed myself as a person worthy of disrespect because I was just so vulnerable you know, so open about what I was struggling with. And so I realized, hey, you know, don't reveal anything in certain social contexts unless you're cool with people gossiping about it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I've always hated gossip. I've always, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I don't like being gossiped about. And I really tried to limit the amount of gossip that I put out into the, into the world because, um, mm. Yeah, it's tough times. I'm, I'm not thinking clearly now. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, didn't wa didn't want to make any significant decisions this week. I didn't really want to react, interact with almost anyone. Like just a handful of people from my various twelve step programs. Like I, I was willing to willing to go there, 
but uh you know aside from that i just wanted to put up a, a mask and uh just kind of tunnel tunnel down <laughs> have you uh much experience with tunnels sir no that, that story sort of broke over the weekend and it was just so like perplexing you know and then it's just weird to, to see all of the anti-semites just kind of Yes, pile onto it like it's the biggest thing in the world. As stupid as it was, and it was stupid, obviously, but uh, it just seems like that whole anti-Semite crowd just needs this particular type of story to feed on. And there's a bunch of creators out there that are just there to serve it up and revel in it, you know. And I don't know. It just seems like I, I, I. I remember the days of the old Luke Ford stream when there was actually like a sincere dialogue taking place, you know? And right now I don't see like any real dialogue happening. I just see this sort of commiseration and I told you so type of stuff. Yeah, there's um, a lot of monkey pox, but not much real dialogue. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> oh, the days of monkey pox seem so like innocent now. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, remember the days when you could just share with anyone that you've got monkeypox, <laughs> but now people are like defensive about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've been listening to like these streams with Richard Spencer and this cast of characters and they, they these, these takes are just so boring now, you know, like the internet used to be, I used to, those types of conversations used to be a source of uh, dopamine for me and they're just not anymore. And so I'm sort of, I'm left without any content on top what, of it all. What about that 12-step mind-body unity guy that we were talking about last time? Well, his stick never goes. It's sort of like a, uh, a carousel that just keeps going around and around and around. Same repetition, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I got a few morsels out of it, but... It never, it didn't seem to go anywhere beyond that. So I didn't, you know, there was a certain spark of interest for a while there, but it just kind of flattened out. And I don't know. I, I, yeah. So I kind of, you know. I like YouTube life. suggestions. I think, I mean, not a hundred percent, but there's often great stuff that YouTube suggests to me. What's your experience with YouTube suggestions? Of very, yeah, it's been good. I've been impressed at how well the algorithm knows me. <laughs> yes. If only my friends knew me that well. Well, here's a story arc that you might find entertaining, though a bit morbid. Is, do you remember the flight, what was it 370 from Malaysia about 10 years ago? Oh, yeah, the missing Malaysian. The missing airline. flight. So there's a whole, you know. Uh, 370, yeah. Yeah, flight 370. There's a whole slew of conspiracy theories well i have to say some of them are legitimate they're theories right but each one could arguably be called a conspiracy theory because it's so outlandish mm -hmm. but then the event itself is so outlandish that it sort of brings what you might call a conspiracy theory to the fore as an actual possibility right so so uh, how much have you delved into this story? Because I've delved into uh, it Moderately. So I guess my, I, I always want to go for the simplest explanation. So some kind of oxygen loss that was not noticed by the pilots and the plane sent everyone to sleep. And then the plane just continued on its course. So it ran out of fuel. Um, so perhaps that, I, yeah, I guess that's my guess. 
What, what do you think? Uh, I honestly thought I knew. I, the, the sort of the main, the orthodox hypothesis that's out there is that the pilot actually um, intentionally downed it. Yes, I've, I've heard that. Right? And so he flew off course, shut off all of the radar, shut off everything so he couldn't be tracked, did basically a U-turn and then hooked around and went down towards Australia. And people hypothesized that it crashed, you know, like 100 miles off the coast of Australia. Because and of that. that he deliberately went past some part of a, an island that had great personal meaning to him. That's what I heard. Well, yeah. And he did it because he had like a beef with the uh, Malaysian government or something. But it's all, you know, conjecture on top of conjecture yeah. and hypothesis. And so that's one story as, you know, and I think that's kind of the default hypothesis. But then there's this other one put forth by a French journalist who's like a mainstream journalist uh, in France. I forget mm -hmm. the name of the, of the um, newspaper, Le Monde or something like mm -hmm. that. Might be. And <clears throat> she advances the idea that that plane contained a bunch of Chinese scientists who had, were believed to have had some, um, you know, killer military technology that they were about to develop in China. And it would sort of, and that the U.S. government took down the plane shortly after it left Malaysian airspace. And that, um, and, you know, I completely scoffed at this when I heard it because it was just a bit too much, you know. And then I listened to a couple of interviews with her and she's not a loon. And at some level, it is at least plausible, I guess, you know. And then, um, and so I've been trying to, and then there's other theories that are sort of hybrids of these. Like the plane went over a, there's a um, military base in the Indian Ocean and uh, it got too close to it and the U.S. downed it there. Anyway, what I'm saying is it just tells you, it, it, it tells you how hard it is to actually <laughs> get to truth, you know, to, yeah. to be confident about things. So that you think you're confident, then you hear something else and then you're a lot less confident. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. It's unprecedented. It's kind of amazing that it's unprecedented that we've never had that this happened before. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah it, it's, it, it fascinates me. Right. Um, and then this, and then the way they came up with the self downing, you know, the process by which they took these, you know, these fragmentary communications between the plane and the satellite and were able to sort of map a trajectory. And yeah. it was all fascinating. And so the people advancing these different, completely polar opposite um, conclusions are both very high IQ, very competent people, you know? Yeah. And uh, it, it's just so funny. I just kind of marvel at how... Uh, how people can be intelligent and possibly get it wrong. So one of these camps has to be ultimately wrong, right? But mm -hmm. they both made very persuasive arguments. And it's sort of vaguely reminiscent of the COVID squabbles of many years mm -hmm. ago. So anyway. Yeah, it's absolutely got my attention. I, I'm I'm wrapped with, you know, what happened. I you know, I was thinking I was thinking, um, like, wouldn't it be awesome if I could find that story and break it? <laughs> yeah. So you got to inject yourself in there, huh? So, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, uh, why, why was this even relevant? Uh, oh, so bringing up place like air travel is just been, it's going to be a bad year for air travel. Uh, oh, so anyway, so, so speaking, so remember on Friday, what also happened was the door flew off that plane and, um, you know, off, off out of Portland. Yes. Right. Yeah. So I'm thinking that store passes. So well, that's weird. Well, it turns out my boss was in Hawaii and, you know, she couldn't get back. So when they grounded all her, those planes, she got um, grounded in Hawaii and it took her an extra couple of days to get back home. Um, but so she couldn't do payroll. So my paycheck was delayed Oof. for like for like four or five days. Oof. And this had a whole slew of cat yes. financial uh terror. <laughs> and like uh I didn't bounce any checks, but I was like redlining, you know? Ooh. Like I have a whole slew of, of payments that hit shortly after the first, you know? So it's basically, um, you know, my rent gets automatically paid, you know, everything gets paid um, by auto pay, right? And like, you know, if I bounce a rent check or something, it's just going to be a whole slew of misery. And so um, it just shows you like, you know, this one little event on a plane that I was not even on had these cascading consequences to me, like, you know, white knuckly uh, financially (laughs) for a few days. Yeah. It's just, it's just like another thing, Luke, another thing that just gets layered on to my stress level, you know? And it's like, when does it end? Do I get, is there like some sort of, uh, you know, it's like. Light at uh, the end of the tunnel? Yeah, but no, salvation, you get rewarded. Redemption. You get rewarded Reward for like enduring. The tough like, times, you yeah. Know, you know, you go through this Job-like trial. And at the end of it, you get this massive payday. <laughs> I, it's just, it's yeah. just like a test, you know? Like in my life, bad things tend to compound. So like when one bad thing happens, like uh, usually the odds are good that another bad thing is going to happen very quickly and they tend to compound on each other. But occasionally a bad thing happens and then a great thing happens. So yes, you've had an experience where you said it's something that's bad yeah, and then later yeah. on you learned out it was actually a blessing. It was a catalyst to something else or something. Or I've had a girlfriend break up with me and I made a $70,000 deal um, within an hour. So I'd lose a girlfriend of a year, but it's like, oh, I'm going to get $10,000 right away. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to make $70,000 on this deal. And and so that's one of those times when, you know, the the bad thing happened, then a great thing happened. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess I had something similar. I got laid off for a job from a job, but it turned out I got this massive severance package that I would never have mm. expected in yeah. a million years, you know? Yeah. And it turned out to be just a blessing, you know? Uh, and then once how, I, how many, how many months of work, if I may ask of, of work pay were you given? Oh, I got five months plus uh like a cash you know like, a, like 10 grand or something wow that's amazing i, I was big base and i was eligible for unemployment which sadly i took advantage of but between all of that stuff i was basically able to coast for a year which i did and which was the dumbest thing i've ever done one of the dumbest things i've ever done <laughs> so 
Um, there's nothing like free time. That, nothing disappears quicker, quicker than just free time. So do you have an iPhone? Yes. Okay, so the Apple Apple savings account, it, it uh, pays 4.35% interest. That's substantial. Really? That's pretty Apple substantial, bank, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm and and it's easy just to, it's easy to move it in and out of your checking account. Man, what are banks paying now? A quarter percent still? Or? Yeah, bupkis, nothing. Bupkis, okay. Well, it's definitely something to consider, but, um, uh, you know, and I'm talking about the sales of my book sales have been way down this year, too. Um, I used to count on this, like, dopamine hit of giving a nice little Amazon report every day how well I did. And it's been just a lousy year. The economy's bad. The economy's down. It all contributes to this feeling of dread. You know, I don't know if dread is just being externally pushed upon me or if it's, like, internally being perceived by me because of my bad mood and uh how much would your mood lift if the 49ers win the super bowl right now mm-hmm. almost i want to say a lot but <laughs> honestly not very much last about a minute <laughs> i would have like a moment of elation in the last about a minute. yeah like i watched the game uh they took all the starters out um this past yeah. week because they're resting up uh because they're in the playoffs uh, they're going to be a good team. We ended this, I left. I watched. Uh, we were up 14-7. Then I left. I just kind of didn't care. It just kind of felt like an exhibition game, you know. So yeah. I didn't. I couldn't, didn't watch the whole thing. And I left thinking they had won more or less. Uh, but I turned out they lost in the end by a point. Um, so, but I, I do think the Ravens are probably the team this year. After after seeing that performance against the Niners, I I, I, I thought the Niners were going to be the the team going in. But after that. Ravens game. I've changed my mind. So I was listening to some female vloggers talk about how they deal with loss and they go on vacation or they go to the beach. Or they do this or that. I assume you're like me. You're less, even less likely to leave the house after humiliation. Um, I'm less likely to socialize, but I'm still pretty likely and generally, I like to get out of the house at least once a day try to do my steps at the bare minimum. But it's hard. I don't do my steps when it's raining. So, And the sun has just come out now as we speak. So I might just go do my steps and see if I can lift myself out of this. Okay, bro. How many steps do you typically do? Um, I try to see. Let me see the phone. Um, I don't know if it's steps or what's that. It's 500 something. Let me see. 500. So 2,000 steps. 500 2000. calories is my wow. goal. Okay. So. You know, that takes about an hour and a half. Yeah, that's like nine or ten miles. No, it's not. Isn't it? Okay. No, it's more like um, four, four and a half, I think. Okay, bro. Blessings. All right. right, Feel better, man. Take care, bro. Thanks for chatting. All right. Talk to you. Bye-bye. All right. right, Back to Decoding the Gurus on Douglas Murray. Can indulgent dinner conversation save our civilization? Oh, I hate it when this happens. Um, um, author of Dr. Zhivago. Why have I lost the name? Pasternak? Pasternak. Why have I lost Pasternak? That's bad. There's mental deterioration. Don't worry. Press on, mental sir. Deterioration right there. Poor Douglas. Yeah. Eric is torturing him there. But it's, it also feels like, yes, because, you know, if you just typed it into your freaking phone, you could get it in like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
I know. I mean, like, I would never, like, I've got the worst memory and I would never make fun of someone for not remembering something. But the fact that they just, it just made such a, that both made such a demonstrative point of, of showing off what wonderful memory is they've got and how, and really how it illustrates what marvelous human beings they are. It, it was yeah, pretty it's, funny. It's just like, um, maybe that's why people. Yeah, and trashing phones, like being able to just look something up like that, it, it's a it's a good thing, bro. It's a good thing. People look up the thing, right, to avoid that painful, uncomfortable silence while you are like, I, I could get the answer so easily, but I'm not alive. <laughs> uh, we, we have to give credit to Eric for not editing that out. That yeah. And, and well. Okay, Colin Liddell went on the Stephen J. James show. Let's probably get do the some same of that. Thing as Epstein, Earth and Mass Tunnels is probably the same thing, as opposed to if it was the only story, it would just be like, Oh, I didn't know there were poor Jews. I didn't know that there was such a thing as like Crown Heights where Jews are so poor that they're like sleeping in mattresses and illegal tunnels under buildings. And I think actually like compared to uh, the stereotype that that's actually good for Jews. Like, no, not all Jews are rich. You're like Joseph Cohn or something like, like no, that's an anti-Semitic stereotype. Don't you know in Crown Heights there's Jews that are so poor they're sleeping in mattresses on, under tunnels and buildings? Mm. We don't see that angle. But well, I suppose I do. I in Israel, I do. No one's going to focus on like, oh my God, there's Jews that are so poor that they're sleeping in tunnels under buildings. Colin Liddell, Liddell is here. Welcome, Colin. You're muted, dude. So was Colin shocked that there's Jews so poor that, or he thinks the conspiracy, he thinks it's like Epstein conspiracy. I'm sure Colin will have a very reasonable take. Yes, there are Jews that are so poor that they're sleeping in illegal tunnels under a synagogue in Brooklyn. Well, this is a very minor story that there are some Jews living in New York and that they behave in occasionally eccentric ways. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's a real pity. That, it's, uh, it's, it's not just Jews, it's Chabad because like these are the same people that go around the world. So it's like, okay, like these rabbis that like all over the world, like, like, uh, you know, like it's these guys it's, and that's why they're doing it. That's why they're going to such, you know, humble, poor conditions because of the dream that they're being sold. Well, how long day. has this stream been running, by the way? Three hours. And what have you mainly been talking about? It's very like the first oh, hour was me just giving a history of Chabad. That guy. So basically, you've it. been talking about Jews for three hours. Why? Because that's I mean, what I do. Like, I talk about have Jews. You got, have you got anything else going on in your life that you have to spend three hours in There's just nothing. one night talking about Jews, Jews. Jews. And, as if it's important? I mean, why, why is it important? Because that's my favorite. Song. I love Jews. I love talking about Jews. Chabad. Well, you like it, but I mean, why is there? Steve, why I don't know. People... Like, Steve just gives me the opportunity to. Yeah, talk about why Jews, does he I have you on? I don't even know who the hell he is. To listen to people talking about a really unimportant story. I kind of like Steve. I don't even know who the hell this guy is. I kind of like him, but he gives me a platform to talk about Jews. I take it. But honestly, I mean, I just don't see why this is important. Well, 50 people are tuning in. I don't know. I, no, I, mean, the story, I, mean, I mean, obviously, people like uh, the, the, um, the the Jew story. They find it yeah. interesting. It satisfies them in some way. It um, feels mm. some uh, weird need. But uh, why does it have any greater significance? Because I just find it incredibly trivial and um, therefore quite boring. Well, I think it was just that Jews, Jews are exposed for something. You know, secret. Jews have got secrets, basically, and they were exposed. Well, it's just, yeah, so what? So everybody, you know, there's all sorts of funny groups in New York. New York's full of pretty weird people. I mean, uh, I went there once, and um, every day was like um, a complete zoo and freak show. Yeah, and even the homeless crisis is like there's hundreds. Of, there's like now is the biggest homeless crisis ever in New York. There, they, did you see that video of like the guy sleeping in the subway where they lifted up the thing? Where like hundreds of rats coming out. But like God forbid, there there's homeless everywhere. And the fact that you get like homeless Jews sleeping in tunnels in a synagogue is, uh, I, mean, I guess, it's more interesting to people. Is like that. Uh, well, well, yeah, it's all catnip for um, anti semites, really. Anti-Semites are looking at this. Uh, you know, the um, I remember. I, I know which clip you're referring to about the homeless person with the rats, Jews coming out of drains. It's all being um, sort of um, memed together, and I wouldn't be surprised if there were um, you know kind of more sinister hands behind this because it seems a bit contrived to me. Yeah, I agree. But I, like, I was willing to take it because like I just love talking about Jews and I love Kabad. I've been there many times. 
And, well, it's, it's okay for people to have, you know, odd hobbies and interests and to be interested in, in Jews or whatever, uh, the peculiarities of Jews. But uh, what sort of um, um, irritates me is, is the way that so many people in the so-called distant right seem to connect it all to the uh, problems of white people. And it's obviously not connected to the problems of white people. Yeah, that's what I was saying about multi Jews are just opportunistic and benefit from multiculturalism and demographic change. But the Jews are not the cause of multiculturalism and demographic change. We just benefit from it. How do you benefit from it exactly? Well, there's multiple ways, but... Uh, um, I mean, one thing, it allows us a clear path to power in the sense of if you have a, a white hegemony, hegemony majority, it's much more difficult for Jews to rise to power as a minority. But in a multicultural area, it's easier for Jews to rise to power. And... Uh, but in a multicultural society, nobody rises to power. You know, it just becomes either chaos or one group imposes its will on the others. And then you have a tyranny. And obviously, um, you know, Jews are incapable of imposing a tyranny over a multicultural society because they haven't actually done that anywhere. Yeah, I would agree. Power is an illusion. Power is the See, this, is, this is what the, this is what the distant right well, believes. Well, this distant right literally believes that the Jews have imposed a tyranny over white society. And uh, that, the only example of this happening is the present day. And it's not actually uh, true. Yeah, I don't think Jews are. I mean, if, if, you push, if you push them, they'll say, oh, what about the Soviet Union? But the Soviet Union wasn't a Jewish controlled society. The Jews got persecuted in the Soviet Union. Uh, early on, they were, they were quite prominent in the revolutionary movement, but they were soon sidelined and pushed down. Well, I mean, the one example of, you know, so to say that Jews are largely given a pass to behave as Jews under the guise of multiculturalism. Like if you look at like the synagogue stuff or a lot of the stuff in uh, London in the US, in the all white neighborhoods, we get a ton of pushbacks. Like there's zoning code and you can't do anything. And in multicultural areas, there's no real pushback. It's just like, okay, it's just the Jews doing their thing. Who's going to stop them? And I mean, there's multiple reasons why Jews support multiculturalism and immigration, you know, sympathy from the Holocaust. Uh, but even if you disagree that Jews, uh, um, I mean, I don't think Jews are causing it. I think, yeah, it's, well, it's they, yeah I mean, they're not causing it. I mean, they, they, might, they might feel more comfortable in a more diverse society, but that's, uh, that doesn't have any particular relevance because that multicultural diverse society is happening anyway. And it would happen whether there were Jews or whether they didn't exist. Yeah, that's why I said about globalism. I say, like, generally, Judaism is more probably favorable towards globalism. Jews are probably more adapted to globalism than other peoples and might stand to benefit it. Uh, but the pressures of globalism are natural. I don't even think, like, there's not even, like, a cabal of globalists pushing globalism. The pressures of globalism are natural. And well, are, are, the, are, are the Jews actually adept at globalism? Because I think globalism, when you look at it uh, historically, it's a British phenomenon. The British created globalism through naval power and through, you know, things like um, ideas of free trade, which uh, came out of uh, a book by Adam Smith, who wasn't Jewish. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't say the Jews create, but I said the Jews benefit and the Jews are. Well, you, you said they're more adept at globalism. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so saying that's not ov um, obviously the case because, the, you know, there are other groups that um, are able to um, deal with globalism and to benefit from it. And yeah, uh, you know, Britain's very much a globalist entity. Of, obviously, I just said that Jews, I mean, there's the element that Jews are generally bilingual and there's Jews in most nations. So like along the Silk Road. Well, globalism is all about speaking Jewish English, people. remember. It's not about speaking Hungarian or, uh, you know, five or six Central European languages. It's about speaking English. And that just proves that uh, globalism is essentially an Anglo phenomenon. Well, only in modern times. In the ancient times where you had Jews all around the Silk Road, and if the Jews had a common language that they say, well, there's Jews who are assimilated. Well, you had all sorts of people around the Silk Road. I mean, you had a lot of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. You had all sorts of um, tribes and that, uh, specialized in, that, that specialized in certain trades. You know, so I, I agree, but you're saying you're just missing the I mean, generally consensus, basic understanding that there's a certain benefit that Jews that, that Jews have somewhat of a monolithic culture and they have a language that well, you can be involved in. Well, international my, my point is, it's very inter Jewish I, history I is very interesting. I could go to a non-English speaking country, a place that has yeah, different yes. ways, I could, and I could team up with the Jews. Sure, sure. But, my, my point is that uh, no matter how interesting Jewish history might be it's not particularly relevant or significant and it seems to get uh, undue attention paid to it especially on all these uh, distant right live streams well and i think that's just a bit pathetic and sad really and uh, quite boring after a while well well and Colin, I if, if I, okay right so while you're here then colin if i may i know this is not in my interest to do this and, and therefore i'll caveat this and present it as here is an anti-semitic trope or something here and let's 
look at this. So I'll just share this on the screen like that I've got, that I found on Twitter. So what would you say to this anti-Semitic claim here that says, why are Jews 1,650% overrepresented in the White House? So of the 474 White House staff members, 155 of them are Jewish. That's roughly 33%, blah, blah, blah. What about something like that? It sort of reminds me of uh, some of the memes about the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union was supposedly completely run by Jews. But when you actually look into it, you'll notice that, uh, you know, uh, when you apply an objective analysis of, the, mm -hmm. of that, it soon falls apart. And, I'll put that link in the chat. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've seen this meme um, debunked by several people. So I think if you look into it, it's not, it doesn't really hold up. It's, uh, it's just highly selective uh, evidence. So people will look at the evidence that supports their, their thesis and ignore all the evidence that doesn't. So there's, hmm. there's a whole um, kind of uh, subculture of uh, creating these fake memes and then debunking them. So it just okay. requires a lot of analysis and work. Well, the link's in the chat. If anybody wishes to do a debunking on that and get back to me, that would be good. And we could talk about it on the next three-hour Jew stream. You know, the first hour was kind of just boring, dubbed lecturing on Jewish history or Jewish sociology. Uh, and then the second hour got more into conspiracies because people weren't really that interested. You just like the history of Chabad, how they get started at Crown Heights, where the different factions, why are they fighting over the synagogue, why are there homeless people you know sleeping in the basement of a synagogue, why are they tunneling, uh, you know, then to the conspiracy type uh, you know, miscontrols like of immigration and multiculturalism that because uh, you know, I think that's a big fear amongst Stephen's audience. They're scared of immigration and multiculturalism, and maybe even just superstition over Jews that uh, you know economics or politics like you know Collins a smart man but your average person these things are more complicated it's like Luke Ford and the magic key so then rather than read Adam Smith or a bunch of political economic history the magic key of the, G of the Jews makes more sense to make understanding of it yeah I don't disagree I don't disagree everybody's looking for the magic key Luke does have a point there of course and, and just the constant controversy over like you do it arguing in favor of multiculturalism, immigration, or claiming that multiculturalism and immigration generally goes along with Jewish strategy to the conspiratorial that Jews are causing multiculturalism and immigration just because Jews are in favor of multiculturalism and immigration uh, like, uh, on, in, as a general trend. Well, you can say that, dude. I can't, so. <laughs> well, you can't even say that Jews are in favor overall, or maybe you can, I mean, that's not even that controversial, that Jews favor multiculturalism and immigration to say that Jews are causing it, and then the complications of demographic change and how to deal with it. Well, I did say earlier, I don't think like any, well, anybody in particular that I'm aware of, correct me if I'm wrong, is causing Pakistanis to be brought into Britain. So, I, you know, I think there's anybody particularly to blame and then, for I that as a group. Considering the audience... Well, there, there is a group to blame, isn't, isn't there? It's actually the British people themselves uh, that are um, kind of creating the conditions that uh, promote that and allow it. Well, I mean... It's probably more healthy to blame yourself than other people, but you could also argue that the British really have no power to stop it. There's just overwhelming forces causing it to happen and they don't have the power to stop it. Well, they have the power to stop it, but they've uh, decided that um, stopping it's too much trouble. Uh, it would impinge on their lifestyles too much. And, uh, you know, why make a big fuss about it? Maybe That's it'll be okay. Be. You know, they, 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 a lot of them think, oh, never mind, it won't affect me too much. Or maybe uh, these people will be fine. They'll fit in and uh, we'll, all be, we'll all live happily together. So there's just a lot of uh, short-termism and naivety involved and also laziness and uh, unwillingness to change their lifestyles. And that actually has... Um, completely nothing to do with a bunch of Jews or um, people living in tunnels or whatever you want to call them. Well, you made that statement that you might argue that they have the power to stop it. They might not. And I was... Oh, they definitely you, have the power to stop it. Anybody has agency. Anybody can decide that uh, this, is, this is actually what I'm doing is not particularly good for me it. and my group. And uh, why don't I, uh, you know, sort of change course? People do have the power, um, but they've, they're choosing not to, not to use it. Just because somebody doesn't choose to yeah, use they power doesn't mean the they, they don't to... have it. Yeah, but you, you say that you have the power to try. It doesn't mean you're going to succeed. 
Well, I think if people just, if enough people decided to do something about it, then things would happen. But uh, obviously, in the long history of um, multiculturalism in Britain and the equally long history of um, British ethno-nationalism, uh, they've never been able to, to build up much of a following. In fact, the only thing they could actually build up a following for was uh, leaving the European Union and thus ensuring that uh, most of the immigration coming into Britain would be non-European. Yeah, what a scam that was. What, what do you take of my point of what, what I'm calling the reverse settler colonial project of basically your new international globalist forces that are reverse settler colonizing the West? Uh, sorry, could you rephrase that? The reverse settler colonialist project where global uh, corporate international forces are settler colonializing the West. Um, with, with, what do you mean? Who's, who's settler colonializing the West exactly? Well, there, are, there is like critical race theory. Like, critical race theory is being used to no, like that you all have these people. A new, not necessarily do this. a cabal or like a conspiracy, but you have forces of globalism and internationalism, and they're bringing uh, people to the West to colonize it in the new uh, global multicultural order. And there's a whole bunch of. I don't think anybody's bringing people, people to the West to colonize it. That's like a yeah. colonial plan idea, isn't it? Well, well, I mean, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds uh, ludicrously paranoid. I mean, obviously, certain corporations are interested in getting uh, cheap and efficient labor, and they're not really too fussy where it comes from. If they can get somebody who's qualified to do a job and uh, who's going to work more efficiently, more cheaply than uh, people in a Western country, uh, then they're going to do so. And uh, the fact that, um, you know, Western people in Western countries aren't really replacing themselves in terms of demographics, there, there's always going to be uh, a suction on. Uh, on immigration so there's always going to be a steady flow of people who are qualified or talented or who are uh, willing to work hard coming into western countries uh, unless you create some sort of system that can uh, legitimately oppose it yeah, why is colonized not the right word and just a basic send a group of settlers and establish well, colonize is, uh, a colony is, is usually a planned operation it's part of a bigger plan and i don't think it is part of a bigger plan it's just uh, companies trying to make money that's not a plan that's just a, a sort of basic uh, commercial impulse yeah, but it's okay if the conspiracy is not, it's not being led by a group of conspirators, it's being led by natural forces, and it's not just on the lower end. Well, you've got, to, high... you've got to worry about how you describe things, because the way you describe things can often create uh, misleading uh, associations and connotations. And uh, I think you've just got to look at it in a, in a much more basic term. And the, 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 um, the correct way to view it is that Western countries, which are um, highly uh, affluent for all sorts of reasons, have uh, sub-replacement fertility, and therefore they always have an, uh, a lack of... Uh, labor and manpower to do certain tasks. And so they are always going to suck in immigrants unless there is a political uh, decision taken at some level to stop it. And in fact, you know, people go on about um, British governments being very uh, pro-immigration. But the, the, the fact is that there are, most British governments are anti-immigration and they, they go to considerable uh, trouble to actually limit immigration. But uh, in the face of the demographic uh, slope that they've created through feminism and individualism and low birth rates, uh, the inevitable you know, effect is that uh, there's going to be a lot more immigration. But they just try to manage it or limit limit it to some degree. Well, I was applying the old Zionist slogan to the you know, the West of the reverse the settler project, colonial project that, that I'm calling it that the, uh, a land a people without a land for a uh, land without a people. It's saying the the people without a land are you know wherever the immigrants are coming are coming from, and the land without a uh, people is the West. Well, it's more like a people without an economy coming to an, an economy without a people. That would probably be a, um, a more uh, astute way to phrase that. Yeah, but I'm saying that's what led to, so to say, the Zionist settler colonial project. And people don't like the term, but you know that concept of the of people without a land for a land without a people. So the reverse settler colonial project in the West, if you say it's a, a people without an economy to for an economy without a people, and that's these greater forces of uh, of, of globalism and why the immigration keeps on coming and why you may not be able to stop it. You just like like Palestinians, like okay, they wanted to stop the Israeli colonial. Well, colonial basically, basically, to... David, you're just engaging in um, using kind of triggery language. It's going to uh, trigger all the. Um... The kind of anti-Semites and JQ uh, white wignats out there, uh, which is usually your your audience. 
yeah, man, that's what I'm trying to phrase it in the type terms of the people that watch this stuff they might be familiar with. I mean, and I guess people watch this stuff because they like to be triggered. Yeah, SJJ, what was that comment that, uh, that just flashed up? Oh, yeah, so Nudge Unit asks, what is the point then, Colin? Should we conclude that it's better to give up, or should people focus on something else and accept it, etc.? What is the objective here? Well, I think that the first objective is to get off the, the JQ train, because it doesn't go anywhere, and it doesn't really explain why anything's happening. So, um, yeah, first goal is get off the JQ train and stop using the Jews as a, a kind of a sorry excuse and a cope for all the shit that's happening in the world. And then once you do that, I think most of these steps are quite logical. People should then... Um, move on to uh, kind of more natural logical conclusions that uh, do they want to have a, a healthy society and is uh, demographic replacement part of that healthy society or not cool i mean keep things simple if they're not simple they're not true really well look i do tend to agree i mean i know that you think that <laughs> dude is like a bit of a costume jew comes on here to trigger the wig nuts or something forgive me if i'm putting words in your mouth I guess. No, 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 I, I completely that. I would, um, you know, em embrace that. Yes, yeah, okay. So, what many people do, I actually seem to feel differently. Maybe I'm just alone in that dude is <laughs> with exposure to him. <laughs> Not the first time, I grant you. The first time you get like the David Yorkshire response, okay, where they say, aha, thank you for confirming all my suspicions, do you? And they go away and they like put it on their channels and say, look, it's a Jew admitting it all. Ha ha ha. Rub their hands, okay. But I think with exposure to it, some dude. He actually has like a, a de-radicalizing effect in a way, but maybe I'm the only one who thinks that. Yeah, most of my content's relatively boring. That I mean, relatively like, you know, I, I came because you asked me and uh, you give me a bigger audience, but like the first hour was basically Duvid giving boring, uh, you just history theology, which is probably my, my best feed. You know, so I end up playing the character because it's more interesting. And so, you know, that's the nature of social media brings out the worst in us that uh, you know, give the audience what they want. I mean, maybe Colin's always in character as an intellectual, but the Duvid starts out as an intellectual and then, uh, you know, gets a, uh, dragged down by the crowd to give them what they want. Yeah, we could have just gone straight to the crowd and given them what they want, to be honest. They were just shouting at us for the first hour. Anyway, gents, I have to uh, uh, take leave of you now, so... Yeah, nice thanks for coming on, dude. Okay, thank you, Colin Liddell there on the Stephen J. James Show. All right, getting back to Decoding Douglas Murray from Decoding the Gurus. I think Eric enjoyed it. You know, I won't let you. That's right. And, uh, and again, we heard Eric like adopting the kind of British accent in there. It's, I don't know, you know, part of it might on occasion be intentional, but I think a lot of it is just mirroring. Uh, yeah, yeah, look, it, it is mirroring and it's not... Um... It's not even particularly unusual, is it? I mean, no, it's, but it's just noticeable. I mean, I think it might be because I'm slightly reactive to, you know, posh British accents, but to hear Eric putting on a fake British accent is even worse. Um, well, okay. A thing which I think follows on neatly from there is another rant that actually ties in to the point about phones is Murray complaining about people putting politics ahead of friendships over dinner, during conversations, and in particular when they're at these dinner parties, which apparently everyone else is having except me. Um, so let me play Murray outlining what his problem is with this. Yeah. Well, maybe part of the problem with this is that everyone is currently behaving as if they're in permanent campaign mode. Yes. When it's not their bloody job. You know, I mean, this is what's so infuriating, particularly in America at the moment. He's like, what do you think this dinner table is? Is it a place where friends congregate and we exchange ideas? Or is it some, some low-grade version of the Veep debate? Exactly. This is... The quality of our relationships at the table are mm. so much higher than the quality of our relationships with these things I call creatures who have fused right. with their parties, that they fused with mm -hmm. their institutions. It's like cyborgs. We're no longer human, but yeah. part man, part machine, yeah. right? So, yeah, so they're having a big um, talk there about how it's so terrible that people uh, are letting their personal relationships get uh, damaged by politics. And it's so important for us to just come together as human beings and converse and share ideas like, like human beings. Yes. yes. And I also want to note, Matt, that they are highlighting that it's a particular kind of person that has been 
badly affected by this. So uh, who do you think it is that has that problem? Oh, who could it be? Yeah, who? Mm. who? Friends who are on the anti-Trump side. At some point in dinner, they have lost it at somebody else at the table. Perhaps something that has crept up on me and crept up on all of you, but I'm really struck particularly by how much more deranged everybody is than they were when I was last here. And I would say of all the people that it's that are visibly hurting, visibly hurting, are my liberal left-wing centrist friends who just have been erupting all the time. It's conversations are quite hard. Yeah. So look, I mean, so far it's a, a pretty um, a pretty uh, anodyne point that we should. Um, you know, be nice to each other and um, not let politics dominate our lives. Sure, sounds fine so far. But I think there's, I think there's another clip there. Chris. Yes, and I, I will also say that like it's treating dinner tables as a fairly freaking secret, you know, secret area of life that is defiled by the discussion of politics. And uh, I don't know, maybe they have these dinner tables where people are having these deep philosophical conversations about the meaning of life that are, you know, now being interrupted by politics. But speaking for myself, yeah. most of my dinner table discussions are just about you know what happened that day and what the kids got up to. So <laughs> exactly, I think. I think- a large part of maybe what we provide you, Chris, is just to go, look, you know, not every, like they, they cultivate this uh, and they, they do this quite a lot in this episode. They cultivate this, this aura and this mystique. They spend a long time talking about the various dinner parties they've been invited to and the famous people they know. He was a conservative uh, member of parliament, very distinguished thinker, extraordinary mind, and a very haunting figure in British politics because I remember him from boyhood, um, and as you met, met him a number of times as a child. He was, he was a captivating figure in lots of ways. He was like an Old Testament prophet. By the way, the, the late George Steiner, who I was, I was sadly I didn't know, but who I once also had given a lecture when I was a boy, um, also deeply impressed this. Uh, George Steiner, I remember critiquing him. He said just so much nonsense. My God. On me. Like, I mean, one of my, I only met him once, but somebody I admired enormously in my 20s, Irving Crystal. And um, I remember Irving said somewhere. Uh, Assuming that many of the people who came to your dinner arrived in luxury automobiles. Oh, yeah, what sure. percentage of those luxury automobiles were purchased by funds that involved China in one way or another. And they make these um, hints at this at this wonderfully civilized discourse that happens in these rarefied circles that um, I don't think their listeners belong to, but I think they're trying to inculcate that feeling of wanting them to wish that they belonged to, to these circles and that they can, by, by listening to, to them talk and reading their books and so on, they can somehow participate. And yeah, look, maybe maybe you and I are strange, Chris, but yeah, my life is not like that. <laughs> yeah, Matt, are you saying, so wait, let me, let me just play a clip. Are you saying you haven't had this kind of experience? Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking about a situation I was just in with my son where we were scuba diving in Belize and we happened to encounter a Caribbean reef shark quite unexpectedly. I, 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 that could be a bad example. I have been scuba diving with my daughter. I haven't counted reef sharks, um, but not in Belize. Oh my God, <laughs> not in Belize, not in Belize. Well, at least, you know, two out of three isn't bad, but I forgot you're an Australian. You know, yeah. you just oh, like, scuba dive on your way to work. Yeah, that's right. And then hop on a kangaroo, go for a ride. It's, yeah, it's a different world. Yep. Well, as somebody from the darker side of the universe, I will say that scuba diving with Caribbean roof, oh, no, not, I don't know where Belize is. So, oh, you're so, uh, so okay. uncultured, Chris. This is terrible. I am, I am. So, well, wherever the friggin' reef shark is, <laughs> when an anecdote starts with that, and it, it's presented as a fairly anodyne thing to talk about you know you're dealing with elites but which would be fine except that they spent all their time reeling against elites yeah that's a problem yeah and like we haven't played all the clips of them doing this but they really do spend an awful lot of time alluding to the very special people they know and the special events that they've been to and just the exclusive circles in which they move they, they do do that a lot they do i uh, i was invited to dinner in, in uh, london which really did comprise i don't believe in the term the establishment i find it lazy and, and I think there are multiple establishments at any one time and conventional uh, yeah but but um, I was, it was really a, a dinner of people who I really would regard as establishment in multiple areas of public life, very mm-hmm. distinguished figures, and, and, and for some reason me, uh, as a grit in the oysters that was in me. And, okay, so to get back to the dinner table, the secret dinner table space, uh, here's why that stance that they stick out might be 
a tad hypocritical. So here's another story that Douglas tells shortly, about 20 minutes after that. Uh, the point is, is that we were, they went, they yeah. go around the table, uh, everyone to uh, explain what they thought the long and short-term threats to the country were. And uh, everybody did the same thing. Everybody in the room talked about how Brexit and Trump were the biggest problems we faced because they had unleashed populism and that, therefore, everything must be done to stop Brexit and Trump. And they got to me and I said, I'd rather not speak. I'd, I'd wait. And the very end of the evening, the host said, um, Douglas, you know, you've been uncharacteristically silent. And that's usually a worrying sign. And what, do you, what do you think? And I, I said, I said, you're all mad. You're all completely mad. Yeah. Um, and among, among much other madness, you've decided that the general public, the majority of the public, must be warred against. In my country, when the majority of the public, when 52% of the public votes for something, don't go against the majority of the public if you, you know. Yeah, so I kept that long because if they get into Brexit and the framing of Brexit is just, again, presenting the popular will of mm. the 52%. Uh, yeah, it, it does, does present itself as the representative of the common man in the exalted circles, most of whom look down on them and don't listen to them and don't respect them. But, you know, the, the main point with that, as you said, it came in about 20 minutes after this long talk about, you know, pretty stupid point, but fine point that it's important to have nice conversations at dinner and we shouldn't get all head up about politics and, and political disagreements. But And then he goes on with this other anecdote, about, which is, involves him sitting and stewing <laughs> and refusing to answer because he just disagrees so strongly and then he saves it for the end and then rants at them <laughs> about what idiots they all are. It, it's just so many of the points that they make in the framing just is, comes across as so inauthentic. Oh, and hypocritical because like, I mean, in that case, it sounds like another weird dinner party where people go around and you outline what you see the problems of society. <laughs> like, but okay, that's, that's something that people do. <laughs> <laughs> to be pretty clear, I, I doubt that these events actually really happened in the way that they're being described anyway. It's all, it's all just the way things are presented. Well, but that's, that's even worse if it's true because like the glee that he takes off you know saying how dare yeah, yeah. and and also it's that he's channeling you know outrage and chastising people for the, expressing whatever views that he didn't like that the biggest problems are populism and trump or something like that and, but he just went on about how you shouldn't do that how you, people can express their opinions and that's fine and it's okay to hear things but instead he sat silently you know when asked his opinion he said i think i'll give it later and then uh, and then at the end launches into a tirade so if that's not true like, it's even worse, right? Because then he's just inventing a scenario where he ranted at people in his mind. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work very well either way, but yeah. So look, we should pause just for a second here and because it feels like we've been jumping around a fair bit. But um, in this episode, this four and a half hour chat they have, they really don't deal with any of these topics properly. So it's it's different from, say, the Rutger Bregman episode or the ContraPoints episode where they do have some sort of structure to the conversation and they do lay out some sort of arguments and there's actually some meat to sort of deal with. In this rambling conversation, they, they hint at and touch on and then drift away um, every single topic. So if, if you feel, I'm talking to, to people listening now, if you're feeling like you haven't gotten a sense of what they're talking about from our coverage, really, I'm sorry, but you're not missing out on anything because there just was nothing, there was nothing there. So yeah, just explaining about the scattergun approach we're taking. Well, that's, I, I think that you're a little bit harsh though, Matt, because I will say that they do have kind of segments where they spend 20 minutes on the importance of maintaining a stiff upper lip and learning classical poetry or, oh. you know, it, it, so they do have their little themes. Like they have 30 or 40 minutes they spend yeah. on gender topics towards the end. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, look, they, they certainly have their themes. I guess I'm saying they don't, yeah, they don't back them up or, or debate them or discuss them in any real way. They just agree with each other. But of course that's true. Yeah. I think the, the counter argument would be that their, their examples and their, the anecdotes that they provide are what they are offering to back it up. That is what their evidence is. But I, I agree with you that a lot of the content can be summed up by a couple of clips. Um, which, which I think illustrate the way that they interact and the, they complain about the use of the term performative. But I, I think performative is a good 
word to describe a lot of the way that their conversation works. So here, here's just a couple of clips to give a, a taste of how their interactions go. Um, Marcus Aurelius alone cannot get us out of this problem, but he helps. Okay. Uh, Boethius can't alone help, help us out, but he can help. Um, uh, you know, my view is you wouldn't need kamikazes if um, everyone put one step forward. You know, I, I'm for everybody being taking one step forward. Except you. Well, You're way forward. <laughs> that's Dude. what my mother fears. Yeah, um, uh, I'm with her. I um, look, I don't feel it. I mean, I um, uh, I feel great, apart from for the state of the world. I, I forgot how embarrassing to say that and to have forgotten that it was. So your table would bring it up in this way. Table was one of the and tables then, in which it happened. Exactly. <laughs> um, but as, as, you, as you know, I'm I, um, I'm high on disagreeability in public and highly agreeable in private. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that, that's a representative sample that gives people a taste of what the tone in really 90% of this four and a half hour thing. It's so performative. It's, it feels to me like kind of after dinner conversation with a couple of people that know each other, but it really isn't something that should be recorded and distributed <laughs> because it's, it's, it's so functioned that I could see it playing is really for people to enjoy uh, Eric and Douglas play acting and aping not what intellectuals do, what people's image of intellectuals do. It's hard to identify anything useful that a listener could get out of listening to that. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I will say as well that we talked about the competitive recitals and the reference to elite events and important people that they know. But one thing which Douglas Murray is good at doing is presenting conservative talking points or argument in a kind of persuasive manner, which often involves straw manning or at least significantly weakly presenting the alternative. So there's nothing inherently wrong with him arguing for conservative views, but that's what he's doing. And he's often presenting this as if it's an enlightened form of centrism that he's practicing. But many times it's just clearly partisan. So let me give an example to illustrate. So this is a little bit where he's talking about Europe and America and attitudes towards colonialism and race relations and all that. So there's a lot of things that he says, but here's, here's an example. I mean, as a, a Dutch historian wrote recently at the Spectator, what, what exactly were the Europeans meant to do after they found America? Were they meant to go back home and go, Shh. were they meant to say, we've discovered this amazing place? I don't think it has any potential. I wouldn't bother with it. There's a large landmass over there. It doesn't appear to be at all heavily populated, um, but I don't think we should be much interested in there. Somebody else will find it. What exactly was, were they meant to do? Yeah, maybe not commit genocide yeah. is what you know, people are suggesting. Okay, so stoicism is very hip in many of our circles. And I, I think a little bit of stoicism is probably useful. But overall, I don't think stoicism uh, creates a, a life that works. And there's a good uh, good video here on the, the major flaws in stoicism. So connected to it, that it's actually part of us. Hope, need, want, desire, movement, life, all of it. Right, just totally, totally giving up on hope and, and need and uh, society. All right don't think is a winning formula. These are the result of value systems, of connecting us to the world around us. To divide the world, as we'll see shortly, is to alienate ourselves from it. So the next question we should want to ask is, why do the Stoics want to divide themselves from the world? The central message of Stoicism is that life is short, unpredictable, difficult, that all things come and go, flourish then pass, rise and fall. Things in the universe are transitory, all things human, Seneca reminds us, are short-lived and perishable. Buddhists argue that because of this, we should let go of all desire, because desiring will only lead to disappointment. However, Stoics allowed for some desire. 
we should view life's conditions with joy, as Seneca put it. We should be very careful in what we desire, though. We should, for the most part, desire only two things. One is virtue, which for the Stoics means living according to nature, and we'll come back to that. And the other is tranquility, eudaimonia, good spirit, calmness. To find this sense of calmness, Seneca counseled that we should always reflect on the bad things that could happen to us. Misfortune, he said, is felt most by those who expect nothing but good fortune. So if we take note of or imagine the bad things that might happen to us before we start a task that might be frustrating or go on a journey where we might get stuck in traffic, if we do this, the misfortune will have less of an impact on us. Epictetus, for example, said that as we care for our children, we should also reflect on the possibility that they could die tomorrow. So on the one hand, we should remember that life is short, painful, harsh and frustrating. Marcus Aurelius reminded himself every morning that, quote, the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous and surly, and remind ourselves, as Aurelius says, that death hangs over you. And we should remember that those things are externals, they're outside of our spheres of influence. OK, there's a good reason Seneca and Marcus and Epictetus, Marcus? Marcus Aurelius? Aurelius sounds weird. Marcus Aurelius, I feel like you should say his full name every time. Marky Mark? Back when Marky Aurelius was Marky Mark? There's a good reason Seneca, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus would be attracted to advice like this. They were Romans. The ancient world was, of course, a pretty harsh, unpredictable, frustrating and fleeting one. Nothing was secure. Life was capricious, dangerous and short. Hunger, pestilence, warfare and tragedy were commonplace. Take Seneca. Emperor Claudius had condemned him to death after he'd supposedly had an affair with his niece. He decided instead to banish Seneca and confiscated his property. Seven years later, Claudius's new wife, Agrippa, convinced the emperor to recall Seneca to tutor her son Nero. Seneca, of course, obliged and taught the young Nero some philosophical wisdom. Mercy should be the basis of his rule, that his power should be shared with senators. He taught him about justice and the Stoic tradition. But Nero was vain, jealous and insecure. He tormented, banished and executed his enemies. He murdered two wives, one of them was pregnant. He had his own mother murdered in a specially constructed... Okay, Autistic Merit says, uh, 40. Might I be correct in suspecting that you react with a reflexive apathy to any reference to a film such as Beverly Hills Cop? Yeah, I have no... I, I did see it at some point that the film has no resonance or meaning or importance to me. A complete lack of interest, a response of completely ignoring. Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop means nothing to me. It just doesn't resonate with me. Now, what's that uh, 1989 Italian film about a kid who, who goes to, loves going to the movies and he, he becomes a director? Cinema Paradiso. Okay, Cinema Paradiso. There's a film with a great amount of resonance with me. I think I've seen that five times. Uh, every time I see Chariots of Fire, it, uh, it gets better. Legends of the Fall uh, deeply moves me. What's that Kevin Costner movie, A Perfect Day or A Perfect Year, where he breaks out of a prison and, and ends up teaming with a Jehovah's Witness kid? That movie slays me. That, that movie rips me open. So there are many movies that uh, resonate with me, but uh, Beverly Hills Cop is not one of them.
self-destructive boat that was meant to collapse at sea. She somehow survived and he had to send his guards to murder her instead. He tortured Christians in theatrical shows, some were torn apart by dogs, and Seneca, for his part, defended Nero after he'd murdered his own mother. Eventually, a conspiracy grew to have Nero replaced, 19 senators took part, Nero retaliated and eventually ordered Seneca to commit suicide and of course he obliged, slitting his wrists and dying in the bath. Being a philosopher, after all, was an occupational hazard in antiquity. Socrates had been condemned to drink chemlock to kill himself, and later Emperor Domitian had banished all philosophers from the Roman Empire. Eventually, the parts of Rome revolted against Nero and the conspiracy. Okay, the Kevin Costner movie was a perfect world. All right, that moved me. See to have him killed, grew. Nero fled and committed suicide outside of Rome's walls. Nero gets a bad name, justifiably, but his rule wasn't particularly exceptional. As Julius Caesar knew, in Rome, no one could be trusted. Wives, bodyguards, friends, colleagues, slaves, all at different times murdered their emperors. And they had. So, yeah, there's a lot of pop culture that has great resonance for me. It doesn't have to be lofty. So, I still enjoy 70s and 80s music. Uh, I love Brideshead Revisited. I've probably read or listen to that novel multiple times. I love the, what, 1982 BBC miniseries. Had good reason. Roman emperors tormented senators and aristocrats. At one dinner party, the emperor Gaius burst into spontaneous laughter and when asked what was funny, replied, just the thought that I would only have to nod and your throats would be cut on the spot. Domitian invited senators to a dinner party at which everything was painted in black and the senators' names were engraved in tombstone slaps at the dinner table. During the dinner, the emperor taunted them by talking about nothing but death before simply sending them home at the end of the night. Not the best Friday night, I'm sure. He, in turn, was later slaughtered himself. Ha ha ha. Domitian's success. And the 1998 movie Hillary and Jackie. All right, uh, the... Sad relationship between Jacqueline Dupre, the brilliant cellist, and her older sister, Hilary, also a musician, a flautist, or is it a flutist? Claudius executed 35 senators. Caligula terrorized the state and was eventually killed by senators and guards after numerous previous failed plots. Vespasian allegedly started the Great Fire of 64 AD to clear Rome for his own new palace. Every succession was a crisis. The powers between... The movie that moved me the most when I was a child, I think, was about Thomas More, A Man for All Seasons. So I was raised a Protestant. I was raised to venerate martyrdom, right? The whole religion was centered on Jesus dying on a cross to save us all from our sins. And then I think I was given that book, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, which said that uh, Catholics had murdered 20, 30 million Protestants in, in the first hundred years of Protestantism in, in Europe. So... A Man for All Seasons, that kind of sums up the way I was raised. Now, I was watching that movie as an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old, but it was kind of, a, again, a veneration of martyrdom. So I received a lot of artistic, religious, spiritual messages of a generally Protestant nature espousing the virtues of martyrdom. And that, that got implanted in my soul, and there's still a part of me that, that resonates with the the grandeur of martyrdom. But uh, I don't resonate with a great deal of stoicism. A little bit is good. Emperors and the Senate constantly tested. Incest, rape, and paedophilia were common. Fires and pestilence were frequent. Whether Nero fiddled while Rome burned as the story goes or not, Rome did burn for five days. 
almost a quarter of it burnt to the ground. And in half of Rome's districts, only a few... Okay, this is from the channel then and now. It's a 45-minute examination of the flaws in Stoicism. So with regard to Theatre Thursday by Kevin Michael Grace, I don't have any training in music, in film criticism. So I was really a poor interlocutor with Kevin about the movies. I would try to come up with something. So A Christmas Carol, I kind of took the side of Scrooge. Like at least Scrooge was giving a man a job. It sounded like he was a steady employer. It sounded like he was a reliable employer. It sounded to me like he paid on time. And if if his assistant right, had skills that would have commanded a much higher salary, then he could have... Uh, you know, moved on and and uh, you know gotten gotten a better deal elsewhere. That the the kid, you know, didn't move on. All right, Tiny Tim was it? No, Tiny Tim was the son. A Christmas Carol. All right. So why would someone hang around? Right, Ebenezer Scrooge, this elderly miser. Well, because that was the best deal that the employee had. If he could have done better. Right, he would have taken another job. So uh, it's easy to say, you know, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, hor- horrible boss. But uh, you know, why did why did his employee stay? Right, he wasn't forced to stay. So Scrooge dislikes Christmas and refuses a dinner invitation from his nephew Fred. Right, he turns away men seeking donation. Scrooge also struck me as a person who pays his bills on time. Like I saw many wonderful qualities about Ebenezer Scrooge. I bet he pays his bills on time. I bet he didn't disturb his neighbors. I bet he doesn't didn't play you know rock music late at night. Uh, I suspect he wasn't out there committing crimes. I suspect that he paid his employee on time. I suspect that he was generally a law-abiding citizen. So I I saw many wonderful qualities about Ebenezer Scrooge. Didn't see them when I was a kid, but uh, in my old age, I've come to appreciate people who are law-abiding, pay their bills, don't commit crimes, don't disrupt society. That will do it for me. I'll talk to you blokes later. Bye-bye.